Welcome to Prose for the Days. Thank you for joining me for the fifth installment of The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. If you're reading along at home today, this episode encompasses Book Third, Chapter Nine, through Book Fifth, Chapter Three. Do you have your tea? Today I just have water because it's pretty hot outside. <laughs> Alright, let's jump back in. Nine. An item added to the family register. That first moment of renunciation and submission was followed by days of violent struggle in the miller's mind, as the gradual access of bodily strength brought with it increasing ability to embrace in one view all the conflicting conditions under which he found himself. Feeble limbs easily resign themselves to be tethered, and when we are subdued by sickness it seems possible to us to fulfill pledges which the old vigor comes back and breaks. There were times when poor Tulliver thought the fulfillment of his promise to Bessie was something quite too hard for human nature. He had promised her without knowing what she was going to say. She might as well have asked him to carry a ton weight on his back. But again, there were many feelings arguing on her side, besides the sense that life had been made hard to her by having married him. He saw a possibility, by much pinching, of saving money out of his salary towards paying a second dividend to his creditors, and it would not be easy elsewhere to get a situation such as he could fill. He had led an easy life, ordering much and working little, and had no aptitude for any new business. He must perhaps take to day labor, and his wife must have help from her sisters, a prospect doubly bitter to him. Now they had let all Bessie's precious things be sold, probably because they liked to set her against him by making her feel that he had brought her to that pass. He listened to their admonitory talk when they came to urge on him what he was bound to do for poor Bessie's sake with averted eyes, that every now and then flashed on them furtively when their backs were turned. Nothing but the dread of needing their help could have made it an easier alternative to take their advice. But the strongest influence of all was the love of the old premises where he had run about when he was a boy, just as Tom had done after him. The Tullivers had lived on the spot for generations, and he had sat listening on a low stool on winter evenings while his father talked of the old half-timbered mill that had been there before the last great floods, which damaged it so that his grandfather pulled it down and built the new one. It was when he got able to walk again and look at all the old objects that he felt the strain of this clinging affection for the old home as part of his life, part of himself. He couldn't bear to think of himself living on any other spot than this, where he knew the sound of every gate and door, and felt that the shape and color of every roof and weather stain and broken hillock was good because his growing senses had been fed on them. Our instructed vagrancy, which has hardly time to linger by the hedgerows, but runs away early to the tropics, and is at home with palms and banyans, which is nourished on the books of travel and stretches the theater of its imagination to the Zambesi, can hardly get a dim notion of what an old-fashioned man like Tulliver felt for this spot, where all his memories centered and where life seemed like a familiar, smooth-handled tool that the fingers clutched with loving ease. And just now he was living in that freshened memory of the far-off time which comes to us in the passive hours of recovery from sickness. "'Aye, Luke,' he said one afternoon, as he stood looking over the orchard gate. "'I remember the day they planted those apple trees. My father was a huge man for planting. It was like merrymaking to him to get a cart full of young trees, and I used to stand in the cold with him and follow him about like a dog.' Then he turned round and, leaning against the gatepost, looked at the opposite buildings. "'The old mill had missed me, I think, Luke. There's a story as when the mill changes hands, the river's angry. I've heard my father say it many a time. There's no telling whether there mayn't be summit in the story.' For this is a puzzling world, and old Harry's got a finger in it. It's been too many for me, I know. Aye, sir, said Luke with soothing sympathy. Well, with the rust on the wheat and the firing of the ricks and that, as I've seen in my time, things often looks comical. There's the bacon fat where our last pigs run away like butter. It leaves naught but a scratching. It's just as if it was yesterday now, Mr. Tulliver went on, when my father began the malting. I remember the day they finished the malt house. I thought summit great was to come of it, for we'd a plum pudding that day and a bit of a feast, and I said to my mother, she was a fine dark-eyed woman, my mother was, the little wench will be as like her as two peas. 
Here Mr. Tulliver put his stick between his legs and took out his snuff-box, for the greater enjoyment of this anecdote, which dropped from him in fragments, as if he every other moment lost narration and vision. I was a little chap no higher much than my mother's knee. She was sore fond of us children, Gritty and me, and so I said to her mother, I said, shall we have plum pudding every day because of the malt house? She used to tell me of that till her dying day. She was but a young woman when she died, my mother was. But it's forty good years since they finished the malt house, and it isn't many days out of mall as I haven't looked out into the yard there the first thing in the morning. All weathers from year's end to year's end. I should go off my head in a new place. I should be like as if I'd lost my way. It's all hard whichever way I look at it. The harness'll gall me, but it'd be summit to draw along the old road instead of a new one. Aye, sir, said Luke. You'd be a deal better here nor in some new place. I can't abide new places, my son. Things ain't always awkward. Narrow wheeled wagons be like, and the styles all another sort, and oat cake in some places. Tort the head o' the floss there. It's poor work changing your countryside. But I doubt, Luke, they'll be forgetting rid of Ben and making you do with a lad. And I must help a bit with the mill. You'll have a worse place. Never mind, sir, said Luke. I shan't plague my son. I'n been with you twenty years, and you can get twenty years with whistling for him. No more than you can make the trees grow. You mun wait till God Almighty sends them. I can't abide new victual nor new faces. I can't. You never know but what they'll gripe you. The walk was finished in silence after this, for Luke had disburthened himself of thoughts to an extent that left his conversational resources quite barren, and Mr. Tulliver had relapsed from his recollections into a painful meditation on the choice of hardships before him. Maggie noticed that he was unusually absent that evening at tea, and afterwards he sat leaning forwards in his chair, looking at the ground, moving his lips, and shaking his head from time to time. Then he looked hard at Mrs. Tulliver, who was knitting opposite him, then at Maggie, who, as she was bent over her sewing, was intensely conscious of some drama going forward in her father's mind. Suddenly he took up the poker and broke the large coal fiercely. "'Dear heart, Mr. Tulliver, what can you be thinking of?' said his wife, looking up in alarm. "'It's very wasteful breaking the coal, and we've got hardly any large coal left, and I don't know where the rest is to come from.' "'I don't think you're quite so well tonight, are you, father?' said Maggie. "'You seem uneasy.' "'Why, how is it Tom doesn't come?' said Mr. Tulliver impatiently. "'Dear heart, is it Tom? I must go and get his supper,' said Mrs. Tulliver, laying down her knitting and leaving the room. "'It's nigh upon half-past eight, said Mr. Tulliver. "'He'll be here soon. Go, go, and get the big bottle and open it at the beginning, where everything's set down, and get the pen and ink.' Maggie obeyed, wondering, but her father gave no further orders, and only sat listening for Tom's footfall on the gravel, apparently irritated by the wind which had risen, and was roaring so as to drown out all other sounds. There was a strange light in his eyes that rather frightened Maggie. She began to wish that Tom would come, too. "'There he is, then,' said Mr. Tulliver, in an excited way, when the knock came at last.' Maggie went to open the door, but her mother came out of the kitchen hurriedly, saying, "'Stop a bit, Maggie. I'll open it.' Mrs. Tulliver had begun to be a little frightened at her boy, but she was jealous of every office others did for him. "'Your supper's ready by the kitchen fire, my boy,' she said, as he took off his hat and coat. "'You shall have it by yourself, just as you like, and I won't speak to you.' "'I think my father wants Tom, mother,' said Maggie. "'He must come into the parlor first. Tom entered with his usual saddened evening face, but his eyes fell immediately on the open Bible and the inkstand, and he glanced with a look of anxious surprise at his father, who was saying, "'Come, come, you're late. I want you.' "'Is there anything the matter, father?' said Tom. "'You sit down, all of you,' said Mr. Tulliver, peremptorily. "'And, Tom, sit down here. I've got something for you to write in the Bible.' They all three sat down looking at him. He began to speak slowly, looking first at his wife. "'I've made up my mind, Bessie, and I'll be as good as my word to you.' There'll be the same grave made for us to lie down in, and we mustn't be bearing one another ill will. I'll stop in the old place, and I'll serve under Wakem. 
and I'll serve him like an honest man. There's no Tulliver but what's honest. Mind that, Tom. Here his voice rose. They'll have it to throw up against me as I paid a dividend, but it wasn't my fault. It was because there's rascals in the world. They've been too many for me, and I must give in. I'll put my neck in harness, for you've a right to say as I've brought you into the trouble, Bessie, and I'll serve him as honest as if he was no rascal. I'm an honest man, though I shall never hold my head up no more. I'm a tree as is broke, a tree as is broke. He paused and looked on the ground. Then suddenly, raising his head, he said in a louder yet deeper tone, but I won't forgive him. I know what they say. He never meant me any harm. That's the way old Harry props up the rascals. He's been at the bottom of everything. But he's a fine gentleman. I know, I know. I shouldn't have gone to law, they say. But who made it so as there was no arbitrating and no justice to be got? It signifies nothing to him. I know that. He's one of them fine gentlemen as get money by doing business for poor folks. And when he's made beggars of them, he'll give them charity. I won't forgive him. I wish he might be punished with shame till his own son would like to forget him. I wish he may do summit as they'd make him work at the treadmill, but he won't. He's too big a rascal to let the law lay hold on him. And you mind this, Tom. You never forgive him neither, if you mean to be my son. There'll maybe come a time when you may make him feel. It'll never come to me. I got my head under the yoke. Now write. Write it in the Bible. Oh, Father, what? said Maggie, sinking down by his knee, pale and trembling. It's wicked to curse and bear malice. It isn't wicked, I tell you, said her father fiercely. It's wicked as the rascals should prosper. It's the devil's doing. Do as I tell you, Tom. Write. What am I to write? said Tom with gloomy submission. Write as your father, Edward Tulliver, took service under John Wakem, the man as had helped to ruin him, because I'd promised my wife to make her what amends I could for her trouble, and because I wanted to die in the old place where I was born and my father was born. Put that in the right words, you know how. And then write, as I don't forgive Wakem for all that, and for all I'll serve him honest, I wish evil may befall him. Write that. There was a dead silence as Tom's pen moved along the paper. Mrs. Tulliver looked scared, and Maggie trembled like a leaf. Now let me hear what you wrote, said Mr. Tulliver. Tom read aloud, slowly. Now write, write as you'll remember what Wakem's done to your father, and you'll make him and his feel it, if ever the day comes, and sign your name Thomas Tulliver. Oh no, father, dear father, said Maggie, almost choked with fear. You shouldn't make Tom write that. Be quiet, Maggie, said Tom. I shall write it. Book Fourth, The Valley of Humiliation 1. A Variation of Protestantism Unknown to Boswet Journeying down the Rhone on a summer's day, you have perhaps felt the sunshine made dreary by those ruined villages which stud the banks in certain parts of its course, telling how the swift river once rose, like an angry, destroying god, sweeping down the feeble generations whose breath is in their nostrils, and making their dwellings a desolation. Strange contrast, you may have thought, between the effect produced on us by these dismal remnants of commonplace houses, which in their best days are but the sign of a sordid life, belonging in all its details to our own vulgar era, and the effect produced by those ruins on the castled Rhine, which have crumbled and mellowed into such harmony with the green and rocky steeps that they seem to have a natural fitness, like the mountain pine. Nay, even in the day when they were built, they must have had this fitness, as if they had been raised by an earth-born race who had inherited from their mighty parent a sublime instinct of form. And that was a day of romance. If those robber barons were somewhat grim and drunken ogres, they had a certain grandeur of the wild beast in them. They were forest boars with tusks, tearing and rending, not the ordinary domestic grunter. They represented the demon forces forever in collision with beauty, virtue, and the gentle uses of life. They made a fine contrast in the picture with the wandering minstrel, the soft-lipped princess, the pious recluse, and the timid Israelite. That was a time of color when the sunlight fell on glancing steel and floating banners, a time of adventure and fierce struggle, 
nay, of living in religious art and religious enthusiasm. For were not cathedrals built in those days, and did not great emperors leave their western palaces to die before the infidel strongholds in the sacred east? Therefore it is that these Rhine castles thrill me with the sense of poetry. They belong to the grand historic life of humanity, and raise up for me the vision of an epic. But these dead-tented, hollow-eyed, angular skeletons of villages on the Rhone oppress me with the feeling that human life, very much of it, is a narrow, ugly, groveling existence, which even calamity does not elevate, but rather tends to exhibit in all its bare vulgarity of conception. And I have a cruel conviction that the lives these ruins are the traces of were part of a gross sum of obscure vitality that will be swept into the same oblivion with the generations of ants and beavers. Perhaps something akin to this oppressive feeling may have weighed upon you in watching this old-fashioned family life on the banks of the floss, which even sorrow hardly suffices to lift above the level of the tragic comic. It is a sordid life, you say, this of the Tullivers and Dodsons, irradiated by no sublime principles, no romantic visions, no active, self-renouncing faith, moved by none of those wild, uncontrollable passions which create the dark shadows of misery and crime, without that primitive, rough simplicity of once, that hard, submissive, ill-paid toil, that childlike spelling out of what nature has written, which gives its poetry to peasant life. Here, one has conventional, worldly notions and habits, without instruction and without polish, surely the most prosaic form of human life, proud respectability in a gig of unfashionable build, worldliness without side dishes. Observing these people narrowly, even when the iron hand of misfortune has shaken them from their unquestioning hold on the world, one sees little trace of religion, still less of a distinctively Christian creed. Their belief in the unseen, so far as it manifests itself at all, seems to be rather of a pagan kind. Their moral notions, though held with strong tenacity, seem to have no standard beyond hereditary custom. You could not live among such people. You are stifled for want of an outlet towards something beautiful, great, or noble. You are irritated with these dull men and women, as a kind of population out of keeping with the earth on which they live with this rich plain where the great river flows forever onward and links the small pulse of the old English town with the beating of the world's mighty heart. A vigorous superstition that lashes its gods or lashes its own back seems to be more congruous with the mystery of the human lot than the mental condition of these Emmet-like Dodsons and Tullivers. I share with you this sense of oppressive narrowness, but it is necessary that we should feel it if we care to understand how it acted on the lives of Tom and Maggie how it has acted on young natures in many generations, that in the onward tendency of human things have risen above the mental level of the generation before them, to which they have been nevertheless tied by the strongest fibers of their hearts. The suffering, whether of martyr or victim, which belongs to every historical advance of mankind, is represented in this way in every town, and by hundreds of obscure hearths, and we need not shrink from this comparison of small things with great, for does not science tell us that its highest striving is after the ascertainment of a unity which shall bind the smallest things with the greatest? In natural science, I have understood, there is nothing petty to the mind that has a large vision of relations, and to which every single object suggests a vast sum of conditions. It is surely the same with the observation of human life. Certainly, the religious and moral ideas of the Dodsons and Tullivers were of too specific a kind to be arrived at deductively, from the statement that they were a part of the Protestant population of Great Britain. Their theory of life had its core of soundness, as all theories must have on which decent and prosperous families have been reared and have flourished but it had the very slightest tincture of theology. If, in the maiden days of the Dodson sisters, their Bibles opened more easily at some parts than others, it was because of dried tulip petals, which had been distributed quite impartially, without preference for the historical, devotional, or doctrinal. Their religion was of a simple, semi-pagan kind, but there was no heresy in it, if heresy properly means choice, for they didn't know there was any other religion except that of chapel-goers, which appeared to run in families like asthma. How should they know? The vicar of their pleasant rural parish was not a controversialist, but a good hand at whist, and one who had a joke always ready for a blooming female parishioner. 
The religion of the Dodsons consisted on revering whatever was customary and respectable. It was necessary to be baptized, else one could not be buried in the churchyard, and to take the sacrament before death as a security against more dimly understood perils. But it was of equal necessity to have the proper pallbearers and well-cured hands at one's funeral, and to leave an unimpeachable will. A Dodson would not be taxed with the omission of anything that was becoming, or that belonged to that eternal fitness of things which was plainly indicated in the practice of the most substantial parishioners and in the family traditions, such as obedience to parents, faithfulness to kindred, industry, rigid honesty, thrift, the thorough scoring of wooden and copper utensils, the hoarding of coins likely to disappear from the currency, the production of first-rate commodities for the market, and the general preference for whatever was homemade. The Dodsons were a very proud race, and their pride lay in the utter frustration of all desire to tax them with a breach of traditional duty or propriety. A wholesome pride in many respects, since it identified honor with perfect integrity, thoroughness of work, and faithfulness to admitted rules. And society owes some worthy qualities and many of her members to mothers of the Dodson class, who made their butter and their frominty well, and would have felt disgraced to make it otherwise. To be honest and poor was never a Dodson motto, still less to seem rich though being poor. Rather, the family badge was to be honest and rich, and not only rich, but richer than was supposed. To live respected and have the proper bearers at your funeral was an achievement of the ends of existence that would be entirely nullified if, on the reading of your will, you sank in the opinion of your fellow men, either by turning out to be poorer than they expected, or by leaving your money in a capricious manner without strict regard to degrees of kin. The right thing must always be done towards kindred. The right thing was to correct them severely, if they were other than a credit to the family, but still not to alienate them from the smallest rightful share in the family's shoe buckles and other property. A conspicuous quality in the Dodson character was its genuineness. Its vices and virtues alike were phases of a proud, honest egoism, which had a hearty dislike to whatever made against its own credit and interest, and would be frankly hard of speech to inconvenient kin, but would never forsake or ignore them, would not let them want bread, but only require them to eat it with bitter herbs. The same sort of traditional belief ran in the Tulliver veins, but it was carried in richer blood, having elements of generous imprudence, warm affection, and hot-tempered rashness. Mr. Tulliver's grandfather had been heard to say that he was descended from one Ralph Tulliver, a wonderfully clever fellow who had ruined himself. It is likely enough that the clever Ralph was a high liver, rode spirited horses, and was very decidedly of his own opinion. On the other hand, nobody had ever heard of a Dodson who had ruined himself. It was not the way of that family. If such were in the views of life on which the Dodsons and Tullivers had been reared in the praiseworthy past of pit and high prices, you will infer from what you already know concerning the state of society in St. Ogg's that there had been no highly modifying influence to act on them in their maturer life. It was still possible, even in that later time of anti-Catholic preaching, for people to hold many pagan ideas, and believe themselves good church people notwithstanding. So we need hardly feel any surprise at the fact that Mr. Tulliver, though a regular churchgoer, recorded his vindictiveness on the flyleaf of his Bible. It was not that any harm could be said concerning the vicar of that charming rural parish to which Dorcote Mill belonged. He was a man of excellent family, an irreproachable bachelor, of elegant pursuits, had taken honors and held a fellowship. Mr. Tulliver regarded him with dutiful respect, as he did everything else belonging to the church service. But he considered that church was one thing and common sense another, and he wanted nobody to tell him what common sense was. Certain seeds which are required to find anitis for themselves under unfavorable circumstances have been supplied by nature with an apparatus of hooks, so that they will get a hold of very unreceptive surfaces. The spiritual seed which had been scattered over Mr. Tulliver had apparently been destitute of any corresponding provision, and had slipped off to the winds again from a total absence of hooks. 2. The torn nest is pierced by the thorns. There is something sustaining in the very agitation that accompanies the first shocks of trouble, just as an acute pain is often a stimulus, and produces an excitement which is transient strength. It is in the slow, changed life that follows, 
in the time when sorrow has become stale and has no longer an emotive intensity that counteracts its pain, in the time when day follows day in dull, unexpectant sameness, and trial is a dreary routine. It is then that despair threatens, it is then that the peremptory hunger of the soul is felt, and eye and ear are strained after some unlearned secret of our existence, which shall give to endurance the nature of satisfaction. This time of utmost need was to come to Maggie, with her short span of thirteen years. To the usual precocity of the girl, she added that early experience of struggle, of conflict between the inward impulse and outward fact, which is the lot of every imaginative and passionate nature, and the years since she hammered the nails into her wooden fetish among the worm-eaten shelves of the attic had been filled with so eager a life in the tripper world of reality, books, and waking dreams, that Maggie was strangely old for her years, and everything except in her entire want of that prudence and self-command which were the qualities that made Tom manly in the midst of his intellectual boyishness. And now her lot was beginning to have a still, sad monotony, which threw her more than ever on her inward self. Her father was able to attend to business again, his affairs were settled, and he was acting as Wakeham's manager on the old spot. Tom went to and fro every morning and evening, and became more and more silent in the short intervals at home. What was there to say? One day was like another, and Tom's interest in life, driven back and crushed on every other side, was concentrating itself into the one channel of ambitious resistance to misfortune. The peculiarities of his father and mother were very irksome to him. Now they were laid bare of all the softening accompaniments of an easy, prosperous home. For Tom had very clear, prosaic eyes, not apt to be dimmed by mists of feeling or imagination. Poor Mrs. Tulliver, it seemed, would never recover her old self, her placid household activity. How could she? The objects among which her mind had moved complacently were all gone. All the little hopes and schemes and speculations, all the pleasant little cares about her treasures, which had made the world quite comprehensible to her for a quarter of a century, since she had made her first purchase of the sugar tongs, had been suddenly snatched away from her, and she remained bewildered in this empty life. Why that should have happened to her, which had not happened to other women, remained an insoluble question by which she expressed her perpetual ruminating comparison of the past with the present. It was piteous to see the comely woman getting thinner and more worn under a bodily as well as mental restlessness, which made her often wander about the empty house after her work was done, until Maggie, becoming alarmed about her, would seek her and bring her down by telling her how it vexed Tom that she was injuring her health by never sitting down and resting herself. Yet amidst this helpless imbecility there was a touching trait of humble, self-devoting maternity, which made Maggie feel tenderly towards her poor mother amidst all the little wearing griefs caused by her mental feebleness. She would let Maggie do none of the work that was heaviest and most soiling to the hands, and was quite peevish when Maggie attempted to relieve her from her great brushing and scouring. "'Let it alone, my dear. Your hands will get as hard as hard,' she would say. "'It's your mother's place to do that. I can't do the sewing. My eyes fail me.' And she would still brush and carefully tend Maggie's hair, which she had become reconciled to in spite of its refusal to curl, now it was so long and massy. Maggie was not her pet child, and, in general, would have been much better if she had been quite different. Yet the womanly heart, so bruised in its small personal desires, found a future to rest on in the life of this young thing, and the mother pleased herself with wearing out her own hands to save the hands that had so much more life in them. But the constant presence of her mother's regretful bewilderment was less painful to Maggie than that of her father's sullen, incommunicative depression. As long as the paralysis was upon him, and it seemed as if he might always be in a childlike condition of dependence, as long as he was still only half awakened to his trouble, Maggie had felt the strong tide of pity and love almost as an inspiration, a new power, that would make the most difficult life easy for his sake. But now, instead of childlike dependence, there had come a taciturn hard concentration of purpose, in strange contrast with his old vehement communicativeness and high spirit, and this lasted from day to day and from week to week, the dull eye never brightening with any eagerness or any joy. It is something cruelly incomprehensible to youthful natures, the somber sameness in middle-aged and elderly people, whose life has resulted in disappointment and discontent, to whose faces a smile becomes so strange that the sad lines all about the lips and brow seem to take no notice of it, 
and it hurries away again for want of a welcome. Why will they not kindle up and be glad sometimes? Thinks young elasticity. It would be so easy if they only liked to do it. And these leaden clouds that never part are apt to create impatience, even in the filial affection that streams forth in nothing but tenderness and pity in the time of more obvious affliction. Mr. Tulliver lingered nowhere away from home. He hurried away from market. He refused all invitations to stay and chat, as in old times, in the houses where he called on business. He could not be reconciled with his lot. There was no attitude in which his pride did not feel its bruises, and in all behavior towards him, whether kind or cold, he detected an allusion to the change in his circumstances. Even the days on which Wakem came to ride round the land and inquire into the business were not so black to him as those market days on which he had met several creditors who had accepted a composition from him. To save something towards the repayment of those creditors was the object towards which he was now bending all his thoughts and efforts, and under the influence of this all-compelling demand of his nature, the somewhat profuse man, who hated to be stinted or to stint anyone else in his own house, was gradually metamorphosed into the keen-eyed grudger of morsels. Mrs. Tulliver could not economize enough to satisfy him in their food and firing, and he would eat nothing himself but what was of the coarsest quality. Tom, though depressed and strongly repelled by his father's sullenness and the dreariness of home, entered thoroughly into his father's feelings about paying the creditors, and the poor lad brought his first quarter's money, with a delicious sense of achievement, and gave it to his father to put into the tin box which held the savings. The little store of sovereigns in the tin box seemed to be the only sight that brought a faint beam of pleasure into the miller's eyes, faint and transient, for it was soon dispelled by the thought that the time would be long, perhaps longer than his life, before the narrow savings could remove the hateful incubus of death. A deficit of more than five hundred pounds, with the accumulated interest, seemed a deep pit to fill with the savings from thirty shillings a week, even when Tom's probable savings were to be added. On this one point, there was entire community of feeling in the four widely differing beings who sat round the dying fire of sticks, which made a cheap warmth for them on the verge of bedtime. Mrs. Tulliver carried the proud integrity of the Dodsons in her blood, and had been brought up to think that to wrong people of their money, which was another phrase for debt, was a sort of moral pillory. It would have been wickedness, to her mind, to have run counter to her husband's desire to do the right thing and retrieve his name. She had a confused, dreamy notion that, if the creditors were all paid, her plate and linen ought to come back to her but she had an inbred perception that while people owed money they were unable to pay, they couldn't rightly call anything their own. She murmured a little that Mr. Tulliver so peremptorily refused to receive anything in repayments from Mr. and Mrs. Moss, but to all his requirements of household economy she was submissive to the point of denying herself the cheapest indulgences of mere flavor. Her only rebellion was to smuggle into the kitchen something that would make rather a better supper than usual for Tom. These narrow notions about debt, held by the old-fashioned Tullivers, may perhaps excite a smile on the faces of many readers in these days of wide commercial views and wide philosophy, according to which everything writes itself without any trouble of ours. The fact that my tradesman is out of pocket by me is to be looked at through the serene certainty that somebody else's tradesman is in pocket by somebody else, and since there must be bad debts in the world, why, it is mere egoism not to like that we in particular should make them instead of our fellow citizens. I am telling the history of very simple people who had never had any illuminating doubts as to personal integrity and honor. Under all this grim melancholy and narrowing concentration of desire, Mr. Tulliver retained the feeling towards his little wench, which made her presence a need to him, though it would not suffice to cheer him. She was still the desire of his eyes, but the sweet spring of fatherly love was now mingled with bitterness, like everything else. When Maggie laid down her work at night, it was her habit to get a low stool and sit by her father's knee, leaning her cheek against it. How she wished he would stroke her head, or give some sign that he was soothed by the sense that he had a daughter who loved him. But now she got no answer to her little caresses, either from her father or from Tom, the two idols of her life. Tom was weary and abstracted in the short intervals when he was at home, and her father was bitterly preoccupied with the thought that the girl was growing up, was shooting up into a woman, and how was she to do well in life? She had a poor chance for marrying, down in the world as they were, and he hated the thought of her marrying poorly, as her Aunt Gritty had done. 
That would be a thing to make him turn in his grave. The little wench was so pulled down by children and toil, as her Aunt Moss was. When uncultured minds, confined to a narrow range of personal experience, are under the pressure of continued misfortune, their inward life is apt to become a perpetually repeated round of sad and bitter thoughts. The same words, the same scenes, are revolved over and over again. The same mood accompanies them. The end of the year finds them as much what they were at the beginning as if they were machines set to a recurrent series of movements. The sameness of the days was broken by few visitors. Uncles and aunts paid only short visits now. Of course, they could not stay to meals, and the constraint caused by Mr. Tulliver's savage silence, which seemed to add to the hollow resonance of the bare, uncarpeted room when the aunts were talking, heightened the unpleasantness of these family visits on all sides, and tended to make them rare. As for other acquaintances, there was a chill air surrounding those who are down in the world, and people are glad to get away from them, as from a cold room. Human beings, mere men and women, without furniture, without anything to offer you, who have ceased to count as anybody, present an embarrassing negation of reasons for wishing to see them, or of subjects on which to converse with them. At that distant day there was a dreary isolation in the civilized Christian society of these realms for families that had dropped below their original level, unless they belonged to a sectarian church, which gets some warmth of brotherhood by walling in the sacred fire. 3. A Voice from the Past One afternoon, when the chestnuts were coming into flower, Maggie had brought her chair outside the front door and was seated there with a book on her knees. Her dark eyes had wandered from the book, but they did not seem to be enjoying the sunshine which pierced the screen of jasmine on the projecting porch at her right and threw leafy shadows on her pale, round cheek. They seemed rather to be searching for something that was not disclosed by the sunshine. It had been a more miserable day than usual. Her father, after a visit of Wakeham's, had had a paroxysm of rage, in which for some trifling fault he had beaten the boy who served in the mill. Once before, since his illness, he had had a similar paroxysm, in which he had beaten his horse, and the scene had left a lasting terror in Maggie's mind. The thought had risen that some time or other he might beat her mother if she happened to speak in her feeble way at the wrong moment. The keenest of all dread with her was lest her father should add to his present misfortune the wretchedness of doing something irretrievably disgraceful. The battered schoolbook of Tom's, which she held on her knees, could give her no fortitude under the pressure of that dread, and again and again her eyes had filled with tears, as they wandered vaguely, seeing neither the chestnut trees nor the distant horizon, but only future scenes of home sorrow. Suddenly she was roused by the sound of the opening gate and of footsteps on the gravel. It was not Tom who was entering, but a man in a sealskin cap and a blue plush waistcoat, carrying a pack on his back, and followed closely by a bull terrier of brindled coat and defiant aspect. "'Oh, Bob, it's you!' said Maggie, starting up with a smile of pleased recognition, for there had been no abundance of kind acts to efface the recollection of Bob's generosity. "'I'm so glad to see you!' "'Thank you, miss,' said Bob, lifting his cap and showing a delighted face, but immediately relieving himself of some accompanying embarrassment by looking down at his dog and saying in a tone of disgust, "'Get out, will you, you thunder and sawney!' "'My brother is not at home yet, Bob,' said Maggie. "'He is always at St. Ogg's in the daytime.' "'Well, miss,' said Bob, "'I should be glad to see Mr. Tom, "'but that isn't just what I'm come for. "'Look here!' Bob was in the act of depositing his pack on the doorstep, and with it a row of small books fastened together with string. Apparently, however, they were not the object to which he wished to call Maggie's attention, but rather something which he had carried under his arm, wrapped in a red handkerchief. "'See here?' he said again, laying the red parcel on the others and unfolding it. You won't think I'm a making too free, miss, I hope, but I lighted on these books, and I thought they might make up to you a bit for them as you've lost, for I heard you speak of pictures, and as for pictures, look here! The opening of the red handkerchief had disclosed a superannuated keepsake and six or seven numbers of a portrait gallery in Royal Octavo, and the emphatic request to look referred to a portrait of George the Fourth in all the majesty of his depressed cranium and voluminous neckcloth. There's all sorts of gentlemen here, Bob went on, turning over the leaves with some excitement. "'What all sorts of noses, and some bald, and some with wigs. "'Parliament, gentlemen, I reckon. "'And here, 
he added, opening the keepsake. Here's ladies for you. Some with curly hair and some with smooth. And some a smiling with their heads on one side. And some if they was going to cry. Look here, a sitting on the ground out a door. Dressed like the ladies I ain't seen get out of the carriages at the balls in the old hall there. My eyes, I wonder what the chaps wear as I go a-courting them. I sat up till the clock was gone twelve last night a-looking at them. I did, till they stared at me out of the pictures as if they'd know when I spoke to them. But lors, I shouldn't know what to say to them. They'll be more fit in company for you, miss. And the man at the bookstall, he said they banged everything for pictures. He said they was a first-rate article. And you've bought them for me, Bob, said Maggie, deeply touched by this simple kindness. How very, very good of you. But I'm afraid you gave a great deal of money for them. Not me, said Bob. I'd a give three times the money if they'll make up to you a bit for them as was sold away from you, miss. For I never forgot how you looked when you fretted about the books being gone. It stuck by me as if it was a picture hanging before me. And when I'd see the books open upon the stall, with the lady looking out of it with eyes a bit like yourn, when you were frettin', you'll excuse me taking the liberty, miss. I thought I'd make free to buy it for you, and then I bought the books full of gentlemen to match. And then, here, Bob took up the small stringed packet of books. I thought you might like a bit more print as well as the pictures, and I got these for a say-so. They're crammed full of print, and I thought they'd do no harm coming along with these bettermost books. And I hope you won't say me nay, and tell me as you won't have them, like Mr. Tom did with the sovereigns. No, indeed, Bob, said Maggie. I'm very thankful to you for thinking of me, and being so good to me and Tom. I don't think anyone ever did such a kind thing for me before. I haven't many friends who care for me. Have a dog, miss. They're better friends nor any Christian, said Bob, laying down his pack again, which he had taken up with the intention of hurrying away, for he felt considerable shyness in talking to a young lass like Maggie, though, as he usually said of himself, his tongue overrun him when he began to speak. I can't give you Mumps, cause he'd break his heart to go away from me. Eh, hey, Mumps, what do you say, you riffraff? Mumps declined to express himself more diffusely than by a single affirmative movement of his tail. But I'd get you a pup, miss, and welcome. No, thank you, Bob. We have a yard dog, and I mayn't keep a dog of my own. Eh, that's a pity. Else there's a pup, if you don't mind about it not being thoroughbred. It's Mother Axe in the punch show, an uncommon sensible bitch. She means more sense with her bark nor half the chaps can put into their talk from breakfast to sundown. There's one chap carries pots. A poor low trade as any on the road. He says, why, Toby's not but a mongrel. There's not to look at in her. But I says to him, why, what are you yourself but a mongrel? There wasn't much picking of your featherin' mother to look at you. Not but what I like a bit of breed myself, but I can't abide to see one cur grinning at another. I wish you good evening, miss, added Bob, abruptly taking up his pack again under the consciousness that his tongue was acting in an undisciplined manner. Won't you come in the evening sometime and see my brother, Bob, said Maggie. Yes, miss, thank you. Another time. You'll give my duty to him if you please. Eh, he's a fine growed chap, Mr. Tom is. He took to growing in the legs, and I didn't. The pack was down again now, the hook of the stick having somehow gone wrong. You don't call Mumps a cur, I suppose, said Maggie, divining that any interest she showed in Mumps would be gratifying to his master. No, miss, a fine way off that, said Bob, with a pitying smile. Mumps is as fine a cross as you'll see anywhere along the floss, and I've been up it with the barge times and no. Why, the gentry stops to look at him, but you won't catch Mumps a-looking at the gentry much. He minds his own business, he does. The expression of Mumps' face, which seemed to be tolerating the superfluous existence of objects in general, was strongly confirmatory of this high praise. He looks dreadfully surly, said Maggie. Would you let me pat him? Aye, that would he. And thank you. He knows his company, Mumps does. He isn't a dog as'll be caught with gingerbread. He'd smell a thief a good deal stronger nor the gingerbread, he would. Lors, I talk to him by the hour together when I'm walking alone places. And if I ain't done a bit of mischief, I'll always tell him. I ain't got no secrets but what Mumps knows him. He knows about my big thumb, he does. 
Your big thumb? What's that, Bob? said Maggie. That's what it is, miss, said Bob quickly, exhibiting a singularly broad specimen of that difference between the man and the monkey. It tells in measuring out the flannel, you see. I carry flannel, cause it's light for my pack, and it's a deer stuff, you see, so a big thumb tells. I clap my thumb at the end of the yard and cut at the hither side of it, and the old women aren't up to it. But Bob, said Maggie, looking serious, that's cheating. I don't like to hear you say that. Don't you, miss, said Bob regretfully. Then I'm sorry I said it. But I'm so used to talking to Mumps, and he doesn't mind a bit of cheating, when it's them skinflint women as haggling, haggling, and would like to get their flannel for nothing, and had never asked themselves how I got my dinner out on. I never cheat anybody as doesn't want to cheat me, miss. Lors, I'm a honest chap, I am. Only I must have a bit of sport, and now I don't go with the ferrets. I ain't got no varmint to come over but them haggling women. I wish you good evening, miss. Goodbye, Bob. Thank you very much for bringing me the books. And come again to see Tom. Yes, miss, said Bob, moving on a few steps, then turning half round, he said. I'll leave off that trick with my big thumb, if you don't think well on me for it, miss. But it'd be a pity it would. I couldn't find another trick so good. And what'd be the use of having a big thumb? It might as well have been narrow. Maggie, thus exalted into Bob's directing Madonna, laughed in spite of herself, at which her worshipper's blue eyes twinkled too, and under these favoring auspices he touched his cap and walked away. The days of chivalry are not gone, notwithstanding Burke's grand dirge over them. They live still in that far-off worship, paid by many a youth and man to the woman of whom he never dreams that he shall touch so much as her little finger or the hem of her robe. Bob, with the pack on his back, had as respectful an adoration for this dark-eyed maiden as if he had been a knight in armor calling aloud on her name as he pricked on to the fight. That gleam of merriment soon died away from Maggie's face, and perhaps only made the returning gloom deeper by contrast. She was too dispirited even to like answering questions about Bob's present of books, and she carried them away to her bedroom, laying them down there and seating herself on her one stool, without caring to look at them just yet. She leaned her cheek against the window frame and thought that the light-hearted Bob had a lot much happier than hers. Maggie's sense of loneliness and utter privation of joy had deepened with the brightness of advancing spring. All the favorite outdoor nooks about home, which seemed to have done their part with her parents in nurturing and cherishing her, were now mixed up with the home sadness and gathered no smile from the sunshine. Every affection, every delight the poor child had had was like an aching nerve to her. There was no music for her any more, no piano, no harmonized voices, no delicious stringed instruments, with their passionate cries of imprisoned spirits sending a strange vibration through her frame. And of all her school life there was nothing left her now but her little collection of school books, which she turned over with a sickening sense that she knew them all, and they were all barren of comfort. Even at school she had often wished for books with more in them. Everything she learned there seemed like the ends of long threads that snapped immediately. And now, without the indirect charm of school emulation, Telemac was mere bran, so were the hard, dry questions on Christian doctrine. There was no flavor in them, no strength. Sometimes Maggie thought she could have been contented with absorbing fancies. If she could have had all Scott's novels and all Byram's poems, then, perhaps, she might have found happiness enough to dull her sensibility to her actual daily life. And yet, they were hardly what she wanted. She could make dream worlds of her own, but no dream world would satisfy her now. She wanted some explanation of this hard, real life. The unhappy-looking father, seated at the dull breakfast table, the childish, bewildered mother, the little sordid tasks that filled the hours, or the more oppressive emptiness of weary, joyless leisure, the need of some tender, demonstrative love, the cruel sense that Tom didn't mind what she thought or felt, and that they were no longer playfellows together, the privation of all pleasant things that had come to her more than to others. She wanted some key that would enable her to understand, and, in understanding, endure, the heavy weight that had fallen on her young heart. If she had been taught real learning and wisdom such as great men knew, she thought she would have held the secrets of life. If she had only books, that she might learn for herself what wise men knew. Saints and martyrs had never interested Maggie so much as sages and poets, 
She knew little of saints and martyrs, and had gathered, as a general result of her teaching, that they were a temporary provision against the spread of Catholicism, and had all died at Smithfield. In one of these meditations, it occurred to her that she had forgotten Tom's school books, which had been sent home in his trunk. But she found the stock unaccountably shrunk down to a few old ones which had been well thumbed, the Latin Dictionary and Grammar, a Delectus, a Torn Eutropius, the well-worn Virgil, Aldrich's Logic, and the exasperating Euclid. Still, Latin, Euclid, and Logic would surely be a considerable step in masculine wisdom, in that knowledge which made men contented and even glad to live. Not that the yearning for effectual wisdom was quite unmixed. A certain mirage would now and then rise on the desert of the future in which she seemed to see herself honored for her surprising attainments, and so the poor child, with her soul's hunger and her illusions of self-flattery, began to nibble at this thick-rinded fruit of the tree of knowledge, filling her vacant hours with Latin, geometry, and the forms of the syllogism, and feeling a gleam of triumph now and then, that her understanding was quite equal to these peculiarly masculine studies. For a week or two she went on resolutely enough, though with an occasional sinking of heart, as if she had set out towards the promised land alone, and found it a thirsty, trackless, uncertain journey. In the severity of her early resolution, she would take Aldrich out into the fields, and then look off her book towards the sky, where the lark was twinkling, or to the reeds and bushes by the river, from which the waterfowl rustled forth on its anxious, awkward flight, with a startled sense that the relation between Aldrich and this living world was extremely remote for her. The discouragement deepened as the days went on, and the eager heart gained faster and faster on the patient mind. Somehow, when she sat at the window with her book, her eyes would fix themselves blankly on the outdoor sunshine. Then they would fill with tears, and sometimes, if her mother was not in the room, the studies would all end in sobbing. She rebelled against her lot, she fainted under its loneliness, and fits even of anger and hatred towards her father and mother, who were so unlike what she would have thought them to be. Towards Tom, who checked her, and met her thought or feeling always by some thwarting difference would flow out over her affections and conscience like a lava stream, and frighten her with the sense that it was not difficult for her to become a demon. Then her brain would be busy with wild romances of a flight from home in search of something less sordid and dreary. She would go to some great man, Walter Scott perhaps, and tell him how wretched and how clever she was, and he would surely do something for her. But in the middle of her vision, her father would perhaps enter the room for the evening, and, surprised that she sat still without noticing him, would say complainingly, "'Come, am I to fetch my slippers myself?' The voice pierced through Maggie like a sword. There was another sadness besides her own, and she had been thinking of turning her back on it and forsaking it. This afternoon, the sight of Bob's cheerful, freckled face had given her discontent a new direction. She thought it was part of the hardship of her life that there was laid upon her the burthen of larger wants than others seemed to feel. That she had to endure this wide, hopeless yearning for that something, whatever it was, that was greatest and best on this earth. She wished she could have been like Bob, with his easily satisfied ignorance or like Tom, who had something to do on which he could fix his mind with steady purpose and disregard everything else. Poor child. As she leaned her head against the window frame, with her hands clasped tighter and tighter and her foot beating the ground, she was as lonely in her trouble as if she had been the only girl in the civilized world of that day who had come out of her school life with a soul untrained for inevitable struggles, with no other part of her inherited share in the hard-won treasures of thought, which generations of painful toil have laid up for the race of men, than shreds and patches of feeble literature and false history." with much futile information about Saxon and other kings of doubtful example, but unhappily quite without that knowledge of the irreversible laws within and without her, which, governing the habits, becomes morality, and developing the feelings of submission and dependence, becomes religion, as lonely in her trouble as if every other girl besides herself had been cherished and watched over by elder minds, not forgetful of their own early time, when need was keen and impulse strong. At last, Maggie's eyes glanced down on the books that lay on the window shelf, and she half forsook her reverie to turn over listlessly the leaves of the portrait gallery, but she soon pushed this aside to examine the little row of books tied together with string. Beauties of the Spectator, Rasselas, Economy of Human Life, Gregory's Letters. She knew the sort of matter that was inside all of these. The Christian Year, 
That seemed to be a hymn book, and she laid it down again. But Thomas Akempis, the name had come across her in her reading, and she felt the satisfaction, which everyone knows, of getting some ideas to attach to a name that strays solitary in the memory. She took up the little old clumsy book with some curiosity. It had the corners turned down in many places, and some hand, now forever quiet, had made at certain passages strong pen and ink marks, long since browned by time. Maggie turned from leaf to leaf, and read where the quiet hand pointed. Know that the love of thyself doth hurt thee more than anything in the world. If thou seekest this or that, and wouldst be here or there, to enjoy thy own will and pleasure, thou shall never be quiet nor free from care, for in everything somewhat will be wanting, and in every place there will be some that will cross thee, both above and below, which way soever thou dost turn thee, everywhere thou shalt find the cross, and everywhere of necessity thou must have patience, if thou wilt have inward peace, and enjoy an everlasting crown. If thou desire to mount unto this height, thou must set out courageously, and lay the axe to the root, that thou mayst pluck up and destroy that hidden inordinate inclination to thyself, and unto all private and earthly good, that a man inordinately loveth himself, almost all dependeth whatsoever is thoroughly to be overcome, which evil being once overcome and subdued, there will presently ensue great peace and tranquillity. It is but little thou sufferest in comparison of them that have suffered so much, were so strongly tempted, so grievously afflicted, so many ways tried and exercised. Thou oughtest therefore to call to mind the more heavy sufferings to others, that thou mayest the easier bear thy little adversities. And if they seem not little unto thee, beware lest thy impatience be the cause thereof. Blessed are those ears that receive the whispers of the divine voice, and listen not to the whisperings of the world. Blessed are those ears which hearken not unto the voice which soundeth outwardly, but unto the truth which teacheth inwardly. A strange thrill of awe passed through Maggie while she read, as if she had been wakened in the night by a strain of solemn music, telling of beings whose souls had been astir while hers was in stupor. She went on from one brown mark to another, where the quiet hand seemed to point, hardly conscious that she was reading, seeming rather to listen while a low voice said, Why dost thou here gaze about, since this is not the place of thy rest? And heaven ought to be thy dwelling, and all earthly things are to be looked on as they forward thy journey thither. All things pass away, and thou together with them. Beware thou cleave not unto them, lest thou be entangled and perish. If a man should give all his substance, yet it is as nothing. And if he should do great penances, yet are they but little. And if he should attain to all knowledge, he is yet far off. And if he should be of great virtue, and very fervent devotion, yet is there much wanting, to wit one thing, which is most necessary for him. What is that? That having left all, he leave himself, and go wholly out of himself, and retain nothing of self-love. I have often said unto thee, and now again I say the same, Forsake thyself, resign thyself, and thou shalt enjoy much inward peace. Then shall all vain imaginations, evil perturbations, and superfluous cares fly away. Then shall a moderate fear leave thee, and inordinate love shall die. Maggie drew a long breath and pushed her heavy hair back, as if to see a sudden vision more clearly. Here, then, was a secret of life that would enable her to renounce all other secrets. Here was a sublime height to be reached without the help of outward things. Here was insight and strength and conquest, to be won by means entirely within her own soul, where a supreme teacher was waiting to be heard. It flashed through her like the suddenly apprehended solution of a problem, that all the miseries of her young life had come from fixing her heart on her own pleasure, as if that were the central necessity of the universe. And for the first time she saw the possibility of shifting the position from which she looked at the gratification of her own desires, of taking her stand out of herself, and looking at her own life as an insignificant part of a divinely guided whole. She read on and on in the old book, devouring eagerly the dialogues with the invisible teacher, the pattern of sorrow, the source of all strength, returning to it after she had been called away, and reading till the sun went down behind the willows. With all the hurry of an imagination that could never rest in the present, she sat in the deepening twilight forming plans of self-humiliation and entire devotedness, and, in the ardor of first discovery, renunciation seemed to her the entrance into that satisfaction which she had so long been craving in vain. She had not perceived, how could she until she had lived longer, 
the inmost truth of the old monk's outpourings, that renunciation remains sorrow, though a sorrow born willingly. Maggie was still panting for happiness and was in ecstasy because she had found the key to it. She knew nothing of doctrines and systems, of mysticism or quietism, but this voice out of the far-off Middle Ages was the direct communication of a human soul's belief and experience, and came to Maggie as an unquestioned message. I suppose that is the reason why the small, old-fashioned book, for which you need only pay sixpence at a bookstall, works miracles to this day, turning bitter waters into sweetness, while expensive sermons and treatises, newly issued, leave all things as they were before. It was written down by a hand that waited for the heart's prompting. It is the chronicle of a solitary, hidden anguish, struggle, trust, and triumph, not written on velvet cushions to teach endurance to those who are treading with bleeding feet on the stones. And so it remains to all time a lasting record of human needs and human consolations, the voice of a brother who, ages ago, felt and suffered and renounced. In the cloister, perhaps, with serge gown and tonsured head, with much chanting and long fast, and with a fashion of speech different from ours, but under the same silent, far-off heavens, and with the same passionate desires, the same strivings, the same failures, the same weariness. In writing the history of unfashionable families, one is apt to fall into a tone of emphasis which is very far from being the tone of good society, where principles and beliefs are not only of an extremely moderate kind, but are always presupposed, no subjects being eligible but such as can be touched with a light and graceful irony. But then, good society has its claret and its velvet carpets, its dinner engagements six weeks deep, its opera and its fairy ballrooms, rides off its ennui on thoroughbred horses, lounges at the club, has to keep clear of crinoline vortices, gets its science done by Faraday, and its religion by the superior clergy who are to be met in the best houses. How should it have time or need for belief and emphasis? But good society, floated on gossamer wings of light irony, is a very expensive production, requiring nothing less than a wide and arduous national life condensed in unfragrant, deafening factories, cramping itself in mines, sweating at furnaces, grinding, hammering, weaving under more or less oppression of carbonic acid, or else spread over sheep walks, and scattered in lonely houses and huts on the clayey or chalky cornlands where the rainy days look dreary. This wide national life is based entirely on emphasis, the emphasis of want, which urges it into all activities necessary for the maintenance of good society and light irony. It spends its heavy years often in a chill, uncarpeted fashion, amidst family discord unsoftened by long corridors. Under such circumstances, there are many among its myriads of souls who have absolutely needed an emphatic belief. Life in this unpleasurable shape demanding some solution even to unspeculative minds, just as you inquire into the stuffing of your own couch when anything galls you there, whereas Eiderdown and perfect French springs excite no question. Some have an emphatic belief in alcohol, and seek their ecstasies or outside standing ground in gin. But the rest require something that good society calls enthusiasm. Something that will present motives in an entire absence of high prizes. Something that will give patience and feed human love when the limbs ache with weariness, and human looks are hard upon us. Something, clearly, that lies outside personal desires, that includes resignation for ourselves and active love for what is not ourselves. Now and then, that sort of enthusiasm finds a far-echoing voice that comes from an experience springing out of the deepest need. And it was by being brought within the long, lingering vibrations of such a voice that Maggie, with her girl's face and unnoted sorrows, found an effort and a hope that helped her through years of loneliness, making out a faith for herself without the aid of established authorities and appointed guides. For they were not at hand, and her need was pressing. From what you know of her, you will not be surprised that she threw some exaggeration and willfulness, some pride and impetuosity even into her self-renunciation. Her own life was still a drama for her, in which she demanded of herself that her part should be played with intensity. And so it came to pass that she often lost the spirit of humility by being excessive in the outward act. She often strove after too high a flight and came down with her poor little half-fledged wings dabbled in the mud. For example, she not only determined to work at plain sewing, that she might contribute something towards the fund in the tin box, but she went, in the first instance, in her zeal of self-mortification, 
to ask for it at a linen shop in St. Ogg's, instead of getting it in a more quiet and indirect way, and could see nothing but what was entirely wrong and unkind, nay, persecuting, in Tom's reproof of her for this unnecessary act. "'I don't like my sister to do such things,' said Tom. "'I'll take care that the debts are paid without your lowering yourself in that way.' Surely there was some tenderness and bravery mingled with the worldliness and self-assertion of that little speech, but Maggie held it as dross, overlooking the grains of gold, and took Tom's rebuke as one of her outward crosses. Tom was very hard to her, she used to think, in her long night watchings, to her who had always loved him so, and then she strove to be contented with that hardness, and to require nothing. That is the path we all like when we set out on our abandonment of egoism, the path of martyrdom and endurance, where the palm branches grow, rather than the steep highway of tolerance, just allowance, and self-blame, where there are no leafy honors to be gathered and worn. The old books, Virgil, Euclid, and Aldrich, that wrinkled fruit of the tree of knowledge, had been all laid by, for Maggie had turned her back on the vain ambition to share the thoughts of the wise. In her first ardor, she flung away the books, with a sort of triumph that she had risen above the need of them, and if they had been her own, she would have burned them, believing that she would never repent. She read so eagerly and constantly in her three books, the Bible, Thomas Akempis, and The Christian Year, no longer rejected as a hymn book, that they filled her mind with a continual stream of rhythmic memories, and she was too ardently learning to see all nature and life in the light of her new faith, to need any other material for her mind to work on, as she sat with her well-plied needle, making shirts and other complicated stitchings, falsely called plain, by no means plain to Maggie, since wristband and sleeve and the like had a capability of being sewed in wrong side outwards in moments of mental wandering. Hanging diligently over her sewing, Maggie was a sight anyone might have been pleased to look at, that new inward life of hers, notwithstanding some volcanic upheavals of imprisoned passions, yet shone out in her face with a tender, soft light that mingled itself as added loveliness with the gradually enriched color and outline of her blossoming youth. Her mother felt the change in her with a sort of puzzled wonder that Maggie should be growing up so good. It was amazing that this once contrary child was become so submissive, so backward to assert her own will. Maggie used to look up from her work and find her mother's eyes fixed upon her. They were watching and waiting for the large young glance, as if her elder frame got some needful warmth from it. The mother was getting fond of her tall brown girl, the only bit of furniture now in which she could bestow her anxiety and pride, and Maggie, in spite of her own ascetic wish to have no personal adornment, was obliged to give way to her mother about her hair, and submit to have abundant black locks plaited into a coronet on the summit of her head, after the pitiable fashion of those antiquated times. "'Let your mother have that bit of pleasure, my dear,' said Mrs. Tulliver. "'I'd trouble enough with your hair once.' So Maggie, glad of anything that would soothe her mother and cheer their long day together, consented to the vain decoration, and showed a queenly head above her old frocks, steadily refusing, however, to look at herself in the glass. Mrs. Tulliver liked to call the father's attention to Maggie's hair and other unexpected virtues, but he had a brusque reply to give. "'I knew well enough what she'd be before now. It's nothing new to me. But it's a pity she ain't made of commoner stuff. She'll be thrown away, I doubt. There'll be nobody to marry her as is fit for her.' And Maggie's graces of mind and body fed his gloom. He sat patiently enough while she read him a chapter, or said something timidly when they were alone together about trouble being turned into a blessing. He took it all as part of his daughter's goodness, which made his misfortunes the sadder to him, because they damaged her chance in life. In a mind charged with an eager purpose and an unsatisfied vindictiveness, there is no room for new feelings. Mr. Tulliver did not want spiritual consolation. He wanted to shake off the degradation of debt, and to have his revenge. Book Fifth Wheat and Tares 1. In the Red Deeps the family sitting-room was a long room with a window at each end, one looking towards the croft and along the ripple to the banks of the floss, the other into the mill-yard. Maggie was sitting with her work against the latter window when she saw Mr. Wakeham entering the yard, as usual, on his fine black horse, but not alone as usual. Someone was with him, a figure in a cloak, on a handsome pony. Maggie had hardly time to feel that it was Philip come back, before they were in front of the window and he was raising his hat to her, 
while his father, catching the movement by a side glance, looked sharply round at them both. Maggie hurried away from the window and carried her work upstairs, for Mr. Wakeham sometimes came in and inspected the books, and Maggie felt that the meeting with Philip would be robbed of all pleasure in the presence of the two fathers. Some day, perhaps, she should see him when they could just shake hands, and she could tell him that she remembered his goodness to Tom, and the things he had said to her in the old days, though they could never be friends any more. It was not at all agitating to Maggie to see Philip again. She retained her childish gratitude and pity towards him, and remembered his cleverness, and in the early weeks of her loneliness she had continually recalled the image of him among the people who had been kind to her in life, often wishing she had him for a brother and a teacher, as they had fancied it might have been in their talk together. But that sort of wishing had been banished, along with other dreams that savoured of seeking her own will. And she thought, besides, that Philip might be altered by his life abroad. He might have become worldly, and really not care about her saying anything to him now. And yet, his face was wonderfully little altered. It was only a larger, more manly copy of the pale, small-featured boy's face, with the grey eyes and the boyish, waving brown hair. There was the old deformity to awaken the old pity, and after all her meditations, Maggie felt that she really should like to say a few words to him. He might still be melancholy, as he always used to be, and like her to look at him kindly. She wondered if he remembered how he used to like her eyes. With that thought, Maggie glanced towards the square looking glass which was condemned to hang with its face towards the wall, and she half started from her seat to reach it down, but she checked herself and snatched up her work, trying to repress the rising wishes by forcing her memory to recall snatches of hymns, until she saw Philip and his father returning along the road, and she could go down again. It was far on in June now, and Maggie was inclined to lengthen the daily walk which was her one indulgence, but this day, and the following, she was so busy with work which must be finished that she never went beyond the gate, and satisfied her need of the open air by sitting out of doors. One of her frequent walks, when she was not obliged to go to St. Ogg's, was to a spot that lay beyond what was called the hill, an insignificant rise of ground crowned by trees lying along the side of the road which ran by the gates of Dorcote Mill. Insignificant, I call it, because in height it was hardly more than a bank, but there may come moments when nature makes a mere bank a means towards a fateful result, and that is why I ask you to imagine this high bank crowned with trees making an uneven wall for some quarter of a mile along the left side of Dorcote Mill and the pleasant fields behind it, bounded by the murmuring ripple. Just where this line of banks sloped down again to the level, a by-road turned off and led to the other side of the rise, where it was broken into very capricious hollows and mounds by the working of an exhausted stone quarry, so long exhausted that both mounds and hollows were now clothed with brambles and trees, and here and there by a stretch of grass which a few sheep kept close nibbled. In her childish days, Maggie held this place, called the Red Deeps, in very great awe, and needed all her confidence in Tom's bravery to reconcile her to an excursion thither, visions of robbers and fierce animals haunting every hollow. But now it had the charm for her which any broken ground, any mimic rock and ravine, have for the eyes that rest habitually on the level, especially in summer when she could sit on a grassy hollow under the shadow of a branching ash, stooping a slant from the steep above her, and listen to the hum of insects, like tiniest bells, on the garment of silence, or see the sunlight piercing the distant bows, as if to chase and drive home the truant heavenly blue of the wild hyacinths. In this June time, too, the dog roses were in their glory, and that was an additional reason why Maggie should direct her walk to the Red Deeps, rather than to any other spot, on the first day she was free to wander at her will, a pleasure she loved so well that sometimes, in her ardors of renunciation, she thought she ought to deny herself the frequent indulgence in it. You may see her now, as she walks down her favorite turning, and enters the deeps by a narrow path through a group of Scotch firs, her tall figure and old lavender gown visible through the hereditary black silk shawl of some wide-meshed net-like material and now she is sure of being unseen, she takes off her bonnet and ties it over her arm. One would certainly suppose her to be farther on in life than her seventeenth year, perhaps because of the slow, resigned sadness of the glance, from which all search and unrest seem to have departed, perhaps because her broad-chested figure has the mold of early womanhood. Youth and health have withstood well the involuntary and voluntary hardships of her lot, and the nights in which she has lain on the hard floor for her penance have left no obvious trace. The eyes are liquid, the brown cheek is firm and round, the full lips are red. 
With her dark coloring and jet crown surmounting her tall figure, she seems to have a sort of kinship with the grand Scotch firs, at which she is looking up at as if she loved them well. Yet one has a sense of uneasiness in looking at her, a sense of opposing elements, of which a fierce collision is imminent. Surely there is a hushed expression, such as one often sees in older faces under borderless caps, out of keeping with the resistant youth, which one expects to flash out in a sudden, passionate glance that will dissipate all the quietude, like a damp fire leaping out again when all seemed safe. But Maggie herself was not uneasy at this moment. She was calmly enjoying the free air while she looked up at the old fir trees and thought that those broken ends of branches were the records of past storms, which had only made the red stems soar higher. But while her eyes were still turned upward, she became conscious of a moving shadow cast by the evening sun on the grassy path before her, and looked down with a startled gesture to see Philip Wakeham, who first raised his hat and then, blushing deeply, came forward to her and put out his hand. Maggie, too, colored with surprise, which soon gave way to pleasure. She put out her hand and looked down at the deformed figure before her with frank eyes, filled for the moment with nothing but the memory of her child's feelings, a memory that was always strong in her. She was the first to speak. "'You startled me,' she said, smiling faintly. "'I never meet anyone here. How come you to be walking here? Did you come to meet me?' It was impossible not to perceive that Maggie felt herself a child again. "'Yes, I did,' said Philip, still embarrassed. "'I wish to see you very much. I watched a long while yesterday on the bank near your house to see if you would come out, but you never came.' Then I watched again today, and when I saw the way you took, I kept you in sight and came down the bank behind there. I hope you will not be displeased with me. No, said Maggie, with simple seriousness, walking on as if she meant Philip to accompany her. I'm very glad you came, for I wished very much to have an opportunity of speaking to you. I've never forgotten how good you were long ago to Tom, and me too, but I was not sure that you would remember us so well. Tom and I have had a great deal of trouble since then, and I think that makes one think more of what happened before the trouble came. "'I can't believe that you have thought of me so much as I have thought of you,' said Philip timidly. "'Do you know, when I was away, I made a picture of you as you looked that morning in the study when you said you would not forget me.' Philip drew a large miniature case from his pocket and opened it. Maggie saw her old self leaning on a table, with her black locks hanging down behind her ears, looking into space with strange, dreamy eyes. It was a watercolor sketch of real merit as a portrait. "'Oh, dear,' said Maggie, smiling and flushed with pleasure. "'What a queer little girl I was. I remember myself with my hair in that way and that pink frock.' I really was like a traveler. I dare say I am now. She added, after a little pause, Am I like what you expected me to be? The words might have been those of a coquette, but the full, bright glance Maggie turned on Philip was not that of a coquette. She really did hope he liked her face as it was now, but it was simply the rising again of her innate delight and admiration and love. Philip met her eyes and looked at her in silence for a long moment before he said quietly, No, Maggie. The light died out a little for Maggie's face, and there was a slight trembling of the lip. Her eyelids fell lower, but she did not turn away her head, and Philip continued to look at her. Then he said slowly, "'You are very much more beautiful than I thought you would be.' "'Am I?' said Maggie, the pleasure returning in a deeper flush. She turned her face away from him and took some steps, looking straight before her in silence, as if she were adjusting her consciousness to this new idea. Girls are so accustomed to think of dress as the main ground of vanity, that, in abstaining from the looking-glass, Maggie had thought more of abandoning all care for adornment than of renouncing the contemplation of her face." Comparing herself with elegant, wealthy young ladies, it had not occurred to her that she could produce any effect with her person. Philip seemed to like the silence well. He walked by her side, watching her face, as if that sight left no room for any other wish. They had passed from among the fir trees and had now come to a green hollow almost surrounded by an amphitheater of the pale pink dog roses. But as the light about them had brightened, Maggie's face had lost its glow. She stood still when they were in the hollows, and, looking at Philip again, she said in a serious, sad voice, "'I wish we could have been friends.' I mean, if it would have been good and right for us. But that is the trial I have to bear in everything. I may not keep anything I used to love when I was little. The old books went, and Tom is different, and my father. It is like death. 
I must part with everything I cared for when I was a child, and I must part with you. We must never take any notice of each other again. That was what I wanted to speak to you for. I wanted to let you know that Tom and I can't do as we like about such things, and that if I behave as if I had forgotten all about you, it is not out of envy or pride or, or any bad feeling. Maggie spoke with more and more sorrowful gentleness as she went on, and her eyes began to fill with tears. The deepening expression of pain on Philip's face gave him a stronger resemblance to his boyish self and made the deformity appeal more strongly to her pity. "'I know. I see all that you mean,' he said in a voice that had become feebler from discouragement. "'I know what there is to keep us apart on both sides, but it is not right, Maggie. Don't you be angry with me. I am so used to call you Maggie in my thoughts. It is not right to sacrifice everything to other people's unreasonable feelings. I would give up a great deal for my father, but I would not give up a friendship or—' or an attachment of any sort, in obedience to any wish of his that I didn't recognize as right, said Maggie musingly. Often, when I have been angry and discontented, it has seemed to me that I was not bound to give up anything, and I have gone on thinking till it has seemed to me that I could think away all my duty. But no good has ever come of that. It was an evil state of mind. I'm quite sure that whatever I might do, I should wish in the end that I had gone without anything for myself, rather than have made my father's life harder to him. But would it make his life harder if we were to see each other sometimes? said Philip. He was going to say something else, but checked himself. "'Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't like it. Don't ask me why, or anything about it,' said Maggie, in a distressed tone. "'My father feels so strongly about some things. He's not at all happy.' "'No more am I,' said Philip impetuously. "'I am not happy.' "'Why?' said Maggie gently. "'At least, I ought not to ask you. But I'm very, very sorry.' Philip turned to walk on, as if he had not patience to stand still any longer, and they went out of the hollow, winding amongst the trees and bushes in silence. After that last word of Philip's, Maggie could not bear to insist immediately on their parting. "'I've been a great deal happier,' she said at last, timidly, "'since I have given up thinking about what is easy and pleasant, and being discontented because I couldn't have my own will. Our life is determined for us, and it makes the mind very free when we give up wishing, and only think of bearing what is laid upon us, and doing what is given us to do.' "'But I can't give up wishing,' said Philip impatiently. "'It seems to me we can never give up longing and wishing while we are thoroughly alive.' There are certain things we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger after them. How can we ever be satisfied without them until our feelings are deadened? I delight in fond pictures. I long to be able to paint such. I strive and strive, and can't produce what I want. That is pain to me, and always will be pain, until my faculties lose their keenness like aged eyes. Then there are many other things I long for. Here, Philip hesitated a little, and then said, Things that other men have, and that will always be denied me. My life will have nothing great or beautiful in it. I would rather not have lived. "'Oh, Philip,' said Maggie, "'I wish you didn't feel so.' But her heart began to beat with something of Philip's discontent. "'Well, then,' said he, turning quickly round and fixing his grey eyes entreatingly on her face, "'I should be contented to live if you would let me see you sometimes.' Then, checked by a fear which her face suggested, he looked away again and said more calmly, "'I have no friend to whom I can tell everything. No one cares enough about me, and if I could only see you now and then, and you would let me talk to you a little, and show me that you cared for me, and that we may always be friends in heart and help each other,' "'then I might come to be glad of life.' "'But how can I see you, Philip?' said Maggie, falteringly. "'Could she really do him good? "'It would be very hard to say good-bye this day and not speak to him again. "'Here was a new interest to vary the days. "'It was so much easier to renounce the interest before it came. "'If you would let me see you here sometimes, walk with you here, "'I would be contented if it were only once or twice a month. "'That could injure no one's happiness, and it would sweeten my life. "'Besides,' Philip went on, with all the inventive astuteness of love at one and twenty, if there is any enmity between those who belong to us, we ought all the more to try and quench it by our friendship. I mean, that by our influence on both sides we might bring about a healing of the wounds that have been made in the past, if I could know everything about them. And I don't believe there is any enmity in my own father's mind. I think he has proved the contrary. 
Maggie shook her head slowly and was silent, under conflicting thoughts. It seemed to her inclination that to see Philip now and then and keep up the bond of friendship with him was something not only innocent, but good. Perhaps she might really help him to find contentment as she had found it. The voice that said this made sweet music to Maggie, but athwart it there came an urgent monotonous warning from another voice which she had been learning to obey. The warning that such interviews implied secrecy, implied doing something she would dread to be discovered in, something that, if discovered, must cause anger and pain, and that the admission of anything so near doubleness would act as a spiritual blight. Yet the music would swell out again, like chimes borne onward by a recurrent breeze, persuading her that the wrong lay all in the faults and weaknesses of others, and that there was such a thing as futile sacrifice for one to the injury of another. It was very cruel for Philip that he should be shrunk from because of an unjustifiable vindictiveness towards his father. Poor Philip, whom some people would shrink from only because he was deformed. The idea that he might become her lover or that her meeting him could cause disapproval in that light had not occurred to her, and Philip saw the absence of this idea clearly enough, saw it with a certain pang, although it made her consent to his request the less unlikely. There was bitterness to him in the perception that Maggie was almost as frank and unconstrained towards him as when she was a child. "'I can't say either yes or no,' she said at last, turning round and walking towards the way she had come. "'I must wait, lest I should decide wrongly. I must seek for guidance.' "'May I come again, then, tomorrow, or the next day, or next week?' "'I think I had better write,' said Maggie, faltering again. "'I have to go to St. Augs sometimes, and I can put the letter in the post.' "'Oh, no,' said Philip eagerly. "'That would not be so well. My father might see the letter, and—he has not any enmity, I believe, but he views things differently from me.' He thinks a great deal about wealth and position. Pray let me come here once more. Tell me when it shall be, or if you can't tell me, I will come as often as I can till I do see you. I think it must be so, then, said Maggie, for I can't be quite certain of coming here any particular evening. Maggie felt a great relief in adjoining the decision. She was free now to enjoy the minutes of companionship. She almost thought she might linger a little. The next time they met, she would have to pain Philip by telling him her determination. "'I can't help thinking,' she said, looking smilingly at him after a few moments of silence, "'how strange it is that we should have met and talked to each other, "'just as if it had been only yesterday when we parted at Lorton. "'And yet we must both be very much altered in these five years. "'I think it is five years. "'How is it you seemed to have a sort of feeling that I was the same Maggie? "'I was not quite so sure that you would be the same. "'I know you were so clever, and you must have seen and learnt so much to fill your mind. "'I was not quite sure you would care about me now.' "'I have never had any doubt that you would be the same whenever I might see you,' said Philip. I mean, the same in everything that made me like you better than anyone else. I don't want to explain that. I don't think any of the strongest effects our natures are susceptible of can ever be explained. We can neither detect the process by which they are arrived at, nor the mode in which they act on us. The greatest of painters only once painted a mysteriously divine child. He couldn't have told how he did it, and we can't tell why we feel it to be divine. I think there are stores laid up in our human nature that our understandings can make no complete inventory of. Certain strains of music affect me so strangely. I can never hear them without their changing my whole attitude of mind for a time, and if the effect would last, I might be capable of heroisms. Ah, I know what you mean about music. I feel so, said Maggie, clasping her hands with her old impetuosity. At least, she added in a saddened tone, I used to feel so when I had any music. I never have any now except the organ at church. And you long for it, Maggie? said Philip, looking at her with affectionate pity. Ah, you can have very little that is beautiful in your life. Have you many books? You were so fond of them when you were a little girl. They were come back to the hollow, round which the dog roses grew, and they both paused under the charm of the fairy evening light, reflected from the pale pink clusters. "'No, I have given up books,' said Maggie quietly, except a very, very few. Philip had already taken from his pocket a small volume, and was looking at the back as he said, "'Ah, this is the second volume, I see, else you might have liked to take it home with you. I put it in my pocket because I am studying a scene for a picture.' 
Maggie had looked at the back, too, and saw the title. It revived an old impression with overmastering force. The pirate, she said, taking the book from Philip's hands. Oh, I began that once. I read to where Mina is walking with Cleveland, and I could never get to read the rest. I went on with it in my own head, and I made several endings, but they were all unhappy. I could never make a happy ending out of that beginning. Poor Mina. I wonder what is the real end. For a long while, I couldn't get my mind away from the Shetland Isles. I used to feel the wind blowing on me from the rough sea. Maggie spoke rapidly with glistening eyes. Take that volume home with you, Maggie, said Philip, watching her with delight. I don't want it now. I shall make a picture of you instead. You among the scotch firs and the slanting shadows. Maggie had not heard a word he had said, but she was absorbed in a page at which she had opened. But suddenly she closed the book and gave it back to Philip, shaking her head with a backward movement as if to say, avaunt, to floating visions. Do keep it, Maggie, said Philip entreatingly. It will give you pleasure. No, thank you, said Maggie, putting it aside with her hand and walking on. It would make me in love with this world again as I used to be. It would make me long to see and know many things. It would make me long for a full life. But you will not always be shut up in your present lot. Why should you starve your mind in that way? It is narrow asceticism, and I don't like to see you persistent in it, Maggie. Poetry and art and knowledge are sacred and pure. But not for me. Not for me, said Maggie, walking more hurriedly. Because I should want too much. I must wait. This life will not last long. Don't hurry away from me without saying goodbye, Maggie, said Philip, as they reached the group of Scotch firs, and she continued still to walk along without speaking. I must not go any farther, I think, must I? Oh, no, I forgot. Goodbye, said Maggie, pausing and putting out her hand to him. The action brought her feeling back in a strong current to Philip, and after they had stood looking at each other in silence for a few moments, with their hands clasped, she said, withdrawing her hand, I'm very grateful to you for thinking of me all those years. It's very sweet to have people love us. What a wonderful, beautiful thing it seems that God should have made your heart so that you could care about a queer little girl whom you only knew for a few weeks. I remember saying to you that I thought you cared for me more than Tom did. Ah, oh, Maggie, said Philip almost fretfully. You would never love me so well as you love your brother. Perhaps not, said Maggie simply. But then, you know, the first thing I ever remember in my life is standing with Tom by the side of the floss while he held my hand. Everything before that is dark to me, but I shall never forget you, though we must keep apart. Don't say so, Maggie, said Philip. If I kept that little girl in my mind for five years, didn't I earn some partner? She ought not to take herself quite away from me. Not if I were free, said Maggie, but I am not. I must submit. She hesitated a moment and then added, And I wanted to say to you that you had better not take more notice of my brother than just bowing to him. He once told me not to speak to you again, and he doesn't change his mind. Oh, dear, the sun is set. I am too long away. Goodbye. She gave him her hand once more. I shall come here as often as I can till I see you again, Maggie. Have some feeling for me as well as for others. Yes, yes, I have, said Maggie, hurrying away and quickly disappearing behind the last fir tree, though Philip's gaze after her remained immovable for minutes as if he saw her still. Maggie went home with an inward conflict already begun. Philip went home to do nothing but remember and hope. You can hardly help blaming him severely. He was four or five years older than Maggie, and had a full consciousness of his feeling towards her to aid him in foreseeing the character his contemplated interviews with her would bear in the opinion of a third person. But you must not suppose that he was capable of a gross selfishness, or that he could have been satisfied without persuading himself that he was seeking to infuse some happiness into Maggie's life, seeking this even more than any direct ends for himself. He could give her sympathy. He could give her help. There was not the slightest promise of love towards him in her manner. It was nothing more than the sweet girlish tenderness she would have shown when she was twelve. Perhaps she would never love him. Perhaps no woman ever could love him. Well, then, he would endure that. He should at least have the happiness of seeing her, of feeling some nearness to her. And he clutched passionately the possibility that she might love him. Perhaps the feeling would grow, if she could come to associate him with that watchful tenderness which her nature would be so keenly alive to. If any woman could love him, surely Maggie was that woman. There was such wealth of love in her, and there was no one to claim it all. 
Then, the pity of it, that a mind like hers should be withering in its very youth, like a young forest tree, for want of the light and space it was formed to flourish in. Could he not hinder that, by persuading her out of her system of probation? He would be her guardian angel. He would do anything, bear anything, for her sake, except not seeing her. And the hints his uncle began to throw out, that after a time he might perhaps be trusted to travel at certain seasons, and buy in for the firm various vulgar commodities. 2. Aunt Glegg learns the breadth of Bob's thumb. While Maggie's life struggles had lain almost entirely within her own soul, one shadowy army fighting another, and the slain shadows forever rising again, Tom was engaged in a dustier, noisier warfare, grappling with more substantial obstacles and gaining more definite conquests. So it has been since the days of Hecuba and of Hector, tamer of horses. Inside the gates, the women with streaming hair and uplifted hands offering prayers, watching the world's combat from afar, filling their long, empty days with memories and fears. Outside, the men, in fierce struggle with things divine and human, quenching memory in the stronger light of purpose, losing the sense of dread and even of wounds in the hurry and ardor of action. From what you have seen of Tom, I think he is not a youth of whom you would prophesy failure in anything he had thoroughly wished. The wagers are likely to be on his side, notwithstanding his small success in the classics. For Tom had never desired success in this field of enterprise. And forgetting a fine, flourishing growth of stupidity, there is nothing like pouring out on a mind a good amount of subjects in which it feels no interest. But now Tom's strong will bound together his integrity, his pride, his family regrets, and his personal ambition, and made them one force, concentrating his efforts and surmounting discouragements. His uncle Dean, who watched him closely, soon began to conceive hopes of him, and to be rather proud that he had brought into the employment of the firm a nephew who appeared to be made of such good commercial stuff. The real kindness of placing him in the warehouse first was soon evident to Tom, with which I need not shock refined ears in this place, and it was doubtless with a view to this result that Mr. Dean, when he expected to take his wine alone, would tell Tom to step in and sit with him an hour, and would pass that hour in much lecturing and catechizing concerning articles of export and import, with an occasional excursus of more indirect utility on the relative advantages to the merchants of St. Ogg's of having goods brought in in their own and in foreign bottoms, a subject on which Mr. Dean, as a shipowner, naturally threw off a few sparks when he got warmed with talk and wine. Already, in the second year, Tom's salary was raised, but all, except the price of his dinner and clothes, went home into the tin box, and he shunned comradeship, lest it should lead him into expenses in spite of himself. Not that Tom was molded on the spoony type of industrious apprentice, he had a very strong appetite for pleasure, would have liked to be a tamer of horses, and to make a distinguished figure in all neighboring eyes, dispensing treats and benefits to others with well-judged liberality, and being pronounced one of the finest young fellows of those parts. Nay, he determined to achieve these things sooner or later, but his practical shrewdness told him that the means to such achievements could only lie for him in present abstinence and self-denial. There were certain milestones to be passed, and one of the first was the payment of his father's debts. Having made up his mind on that point, he strode along without swerving, contracting some rather saturnine sternness, as a young man is likely to do who has premature call upon him for self-reliance. Tom felt intensely that common cause with his father, which springs from family pride, and was bent on being irreproachable as a son. But his growing experience caused him to pass much silent criticism on the rashness and imprudence of his father's past conduct. Their dispositions were not in sympathy, and Tom's face showed little radiance during his few home hours. Maggie had an awe of him, against which she struggled as something unfair to her consciousness of wider thoughts and deeper motives. But it was of no use to struggle. A character at unity with itself, that performs what it intends, subdues every counteracting impulse, and has no visions beyond the distinctly possible, is strong by its very negations. You may imagine that Tom's more and more obvious unlikeness to his father was well fitted to conciliate the maternal aunts and uncles, and Mr. Dean's favorable reports and predictions to Mr. Glegg concerning Tom's qualifications for business began to be discussed amongst them with various acceptance. He was likely, it appeared, to do the family credit without causing it any expense and trouble. Mrs. Pullett had always thought it strange if Tom's excellent complexion, so entirely that of the Dodsons, did not argue a certainty that he would turn out well. 
his juvenile airs of running down the peacock and general disrespect to his aunts only indicating a tinge of Tulliver blood which he had doubtless outgrown. Mr. Glegg, who had contracted a cautious liking for Tom ever since his spirited and sensible behavior when the execution was in the house, was now warming into a resolution to further his prospects actively, sometime when an opportunity offered of doing so in a prudent manner, without ultimate loss. But Mrs. Glegg observed that she was not given to speak without book, as some people were, that those who said least were most likely to find their words made good, and that when the right moment came, it would be seen who could do something better than talk. Uncle Pullet, after silent meditation for a period of several lozenges, came distinctly to the conclusion that when a young man was likely to do well, it was better not to meddle with him. Tom, meanwhile, had shown no disposition to rely on anyone but himself, though, with a natural sensitiveness towards all indications of favorable opinion, he was glad to see his Uncle Glegg look in on him sometimes in a friendly way during business hours, and glad to be invited to dine at his house, though he usually preferred declining on the ground that he was not sure of being punctual. But about a year ago, something had occurred which induced Tom to test his Uncle Glegg's friendly disposition. Bob Jakin, who rarely returned from one of his rounds without seeing Tom and Maggie, awaited him on the bridge as he was coming home from St. Ogg's one evening, that they might have a little private talk. He took the liberty of asking if Mr. Tom had ever thought of making money by trading a bit on his own account. Trading? How? Tom wished to know. Why, by sending out a bit of cargo to foreign ports, because Bob had a particular friend who had offered to do a little business for him in that way and lay some goods, and would be glad to serve Mr. Tom on the same footing. Tom was interested at once, and begged for full explanation, wondering he had not thought of this plan before. He was so well pleased with the prospect of a speculation that might change the slow process of addition and multiplication that he had once determined to mention the matter to his father and get his consent to appropriate some of the savings in the tin box to the purchase of a small cargo. He would rather not have consulted his father, but he had just paid his last quarter's money into the tin box, and there was no other resource. All the savings were there, for Mr. Tulliver would not consent to put the money out at interest lest he should lose it. Since he had speculated in the purchase of some corn and had lost by it, he could not be easy without keeping the money under his eye. Tom approached the subject carefully, as he was seated on the hearth with his father that evening, and Mr. Tulliver listened, leaning forward in his armchair and looking up in Tom's face with a skeptical glance. His first impulse was to give a positive refusal, but he was in some awe of Tom's wishes. He had lost some of his old peremptoriness and determination to be master. He took the key of the bureau from his pocket, got out the key of the large chest, and fetched down the tin box, slowly, as if he were trying to defer the moment of a painful parting. Then he seated himself against the table and opened the box with that little padlock key which he fingered on his waistcoat pocket in all vacant moments. There they were, the dingy banknotes and the bright sovereigns, and he counted them out on the table. Only a hundred and sixteen pounds in two years, after all the pinching. How much do you want, then? he said, speaking as if the words burnt his lips. Suppose I begin with the thirty-six pounds, father, said Tom. Mr. Tulliver separated this sum from the rest, and, keeping his hand over it, said, It's as much as I can save out of my pay in a year. "'Yes, father, it is such slow work, saving out of the little money we get, and in this way we might double our savings.' "'Aye, my lad,' said the father, keeping his hand on the money. "'But you might lose it. You might lose a year of my life, and I haven't got many.' Tom was silent. "'And you know I wouldn't pay a dividend with the first hundred, because I wanted to see it all in a lump, and when I see it, I'm sure on it. If you trust to luck, it's sure to be against me. It's old Harry's got the luck in his hands, and if I lose one year, I shall never pick it up again. Death will overtake me.' Mr. Tulliver's voice trembled, and Tom was silent for a few minutes before he said, "'I'll give it up, father, since you object to it so strongly.' But, unwilling to abandon the scheme altogether, he determined to ask his Uncle Glegg to venture twenty pounds, on condition of receiving five percent of the profits. That was really a very small thing to ask. So when Bob called the next day at the wharf to know the decision, Tom proposed that they should go together to his Uncle Glegg's to open the business, for his diffident pride clung to him and made him feel that Bob's tongue would relieve him from some embarrassment. Mr. Glegg, at the pleasant hour of four in the afternoon of a hot August day, was naturally counting his wall fruit to assure himself that the sum total had not varied since yesterday. 
to him entered Tom, and what appeared to Mr. Glegg very questionable companionship, that of a man with a pack on his back, for Bob was equipped for a new journey, and of a huge brindled bull terrier, who walked with slow, swaying movements from side to side, and glanced from under his eyelids with a surly indifference, which might, after all, be a cover to the most offensive designs. Mr. Glegg's spectacles, which had been assisting him in counting the fruit, made these suspicious details alarmingly evident to him. "'Hey, hey, hold that dog back, will you?' he shouted, snatching up a stake and holding it before him as a shield when the visitors were within three yards of him. "'Get out, will you, Mumps?' said Bob with a kick. "'He's as quiet as a lamb, sir.' An observation which Mumps corroborated by a low growl as he retreated behind his master's legs. "'Why, whatever does this mean, Tom?' said Mr. Glegg. "'Have you brought information about the scoundrels that cut my trees?' If Bob came in the character of information, Mr. Glegg saw reasons for tolerating some irregularity. "'No, sir,' said Tom. I came to speak to you about a little matter of business of my own. Ah, well, but what has this dog got to do with it? said the old gentleman, getting mild again. It's my dog, sir, said the ready Bob, and it's me as put Mr. Tom up to the bit of business, for Mr. Tom's been a friend of mine ever since I was a little chap. First thing ever I did was frightening the birds for the old master, and if a bit of luck turns up, I'm always thinking if I can let Mr. Tom have a pull at it, and it's a downright roaring shame as when he's got the chance of making a bit of money with sending goods out, ten or twelve percent clear when freight and commission's paid, as he shouldn't lay hold of the chance for one of money, and when there's the lace-ham goods, lord, they're made a purpose for folks as want to send out a little cargy, light and take em up no room. You might pack twenty pounds so as you can't see the parcel, and they're manufacturers as please fools, so I reckon they aren't like to one market, and I'd go to lace em and buy em the goods for Mr. Tom along with my own, and there's the supercargo of the bit of a vessel as is going to take em out. I know him particular. He's a solid man and got a family in the town here. Salt, his name is, and a briny chap he is too, and if you don't believe me, I can take you to him. Uncle Glegg stood open-mouthed with astonishment at this unembarrassed loquacity, with which, he is under with which his understanding could hardly keep pace. He looked at Bob, first over his spectacles, then through them, then over them again, while Tom, doubtful of his uncle's impression, began to wish he had not brought this singular air in her mouthpiece. Bob's talk appeared less seemly, now someone besides himself was listening to it. "'You seem to be a knowing fellow,' said Mr. Glegg at last. "'Ah, sir, you say true,' returned Bob, nodding his head aside. "'I think my head's all alive inside like an old cheese, for I'm so full of plans, one knocks another over. "'If I hadn't mumps to talk to, I should get top-heavy and tumbling a fit. "'I suppose it's because I never went to school much. "'That's what I jaw my old mother for. "'I says, you should have sent me to school a bit more,' I says, "'and then I could have read in the books like fun and kept my head cool and empty. "'Lord, she's fine and comfortable now, my old mother is.' She ate her baked meat and taters as often as she likes, for I'm getting so full of money, I must have a wife to spend it for me, but it's bothering a wife is, and Mumps mightn't like her. Uncle Glegg, who regarded himself as a jocose man since he had retired from business, was beginning to find Bob amusing, but he had still a disapproving observation to make, which kept his face serious. Ah, he said, I should think you're at a loss for ways of spending your money, else you wouldn't keep that big dog to eat as much as two Christians. It's shameful, shameful! But he spoke more in sorrow than in anger, and quickly added, But come now, let's hear more about this business, Tom. I suppose you want a little sum to make a venture with. But where's all your own money? You don't spend it all, eh? No, sir, said Tom, coloring, but my father is unwilling to risk it, and I don't like to press him. If I could get twenty or thirty pounds to begin with... I could pay five percent for it, and then I could gradually make a little capital of my own and do without a loan. Aye, aye, said Mr. Glegg in an approving tone. That's not a bad notion, and I won't say as I wouldn't be your man, but it'll be as well for me to see the salt as you talk on. And then, here's this friend of yours offers to buy the goods for you. Perhaps you've got somebody to stand surety for you if the money's cut into your hands, added the cautious old gentleman, looking over his spectacles at Bob. 
I don't think that's necessary, Uncle, said Tom. At least, I mean, it would not be necessary for me, because I know Bob will. But perhaps it would be right for you to have some security. You get your percentage out of the purchase, I suppose, said Mr. Glegg, looking at Bob. No, sir, said Bob, rather indignantly. I didn't offer to get an apple for Mr. Tom, a purpose to have a bite out of it myself. When I play folks tricks, there'll be more fun in them than that. Well, but it's nothing but right you should have a small percentage, said Mr. Glegg. I've no opinion of transactions where folks do things for nothing. It always looks bad. Well, then, said Bob, whose keenness saw at once what was implied, I'll tell you what I get by it, and it's money in my pocket in the end. I make myself look big with making a bigger purchase. That's what I'm thinking on. Lors, I'm a cute chap, I am. Mr. Glegg, Mr. Glegg, said a severe voice from the open parlor window. Pray, are you coming in to tea, or are you going to stand talking with Packman until you get murdered in the open daylight? Murdered, said Mr. Glegg. What's the woman talking of? Here's your nephew Tom come about a bit of business. Murdered, yes. It isn't many sizes ago a Pac-Man murdered a young woman in a lone place and stole her thimble and threw her body into a ditch. Nay, nay, said Mr. Glegg soothingly. You're thinking of the man with no legs as drove a dog cart. Well, it's the same thing, Mr. Glegg. Only you're fond of contradicting what I say, and if my nephew's come about business, it'd be more fitting if you'd bring him into the house and let his aunt know about it instead of whispering in corners in that plotting, undermining way. Well, well, said Mr. Glegg. We'll come in now. You needn't stay here, said the lady to Bob, in a loud voice, adopted to the moral, not the physical distance between them. We don't want anything. I don't deal with Pac-Man. Mind you, shut the gate after you. Stop a bit, not so fast, said Mr. Glegg. I haven't done with this young man yet. Come in, Tom, come in, he added, stepping in at the French window. Mr. Glegg, said Mrs. G, in a fatal tone, if you're going to let that man and his dog in on my carpet before my very face, be so good as to let me know. A wife's got a right to ask that, I hope. Don't you be uneasy, Mum, said Bob, touching his cap. He saw at once that Mrs. Glegg was a bit of game worth running down, and longed to be at the sport. We'll stay out upon the gravel here, Mumps and me will. Mumps knows his company, he does. I might hiss at him by the hour together before he'd fly a real gentlewoman like you. It's wonderful how he knows which is the good-looking ladies, and particularly fond of them when they've good shapes. Lors, added Bob, laying down his pack on the gravel. It's a thousand pities such a lady as you shouldn't deal with a pack-man, instead of going into these new-fangled shops where there's half a dozen fine gents with their chins propped up with a stiff stock, a-looking like bottles with ornamental stoppers, and all got to get their dinners out of a bit of calico. It stands to reason you must pay three times the price you pay a pack-man, as it's a natural way of getting goods, and pays no rent, and is forced to throttle himself to the lives are squeezed out on him whether he will or no. But Lors, Mum, you know what is better than I do. You can see through them shopmen, I'll be bound. Yes, I reckon I can, and through the Pac-Man, too, observed Mrs. Glegg, intending to imply that Bob's flattery had produced no effect on her, while her husband, standing behind her with his hands in his pockets and legs apart, winked and smiled with conjugal delight at the probability of his wife's being circumvented. I to be sure, Mum, said Bob. Why, you must have dealt with no end of Pac-Man when you were a young lass. Before the master here had the luck to set eyes on you, I know where you lived, I do. Seen the house many a time, close upon Squire's Darley's, a stone house with steps. Ah, that it had, said Mrs. Glegg, pouring out the tea. You know something of my family, then. Are you akin to that Pac-Man with a squint in his eye, as used to bring the Irish linen? Look you there now, said Bob evasively. Didn't I know as you'd remember the best bargains you made in your life was made with Pac-Man? Why, you see, even a squintin' Pac-Man's better nor a shopman, as you can see straight. Lors, if I'd had the luck to call at the stone house with my pack as lies here, stooping and thumping the bundle emphatically with his fist, and the handsome young lasses all standin' out on the stone steps, it'd have been something like opening a pack, that would. It's only the poor houses now as a Pac-Man calls on, if it isn't for the sake of the servant maids. They are paltry times, these are. 
Why, Mum, look at the printing cottons now, and what they was when you wore them. Why, you wouldn't put such a thing on now, I can see. It must be first-rate quality. The manufacturers you'd buy, some of it doesn't wear as well as your own features. Yes, better quality nor any you're like to carry. You've got nothing first-rate but brazenness, I'll be bound, said Mrs. Glegg, with a triumphant sense of her insurmountable sagacity. Mr. Glegg, are you going ever to sit down to your tea? Tom, there's a cup for you. You speak true there, Mum, said Bob. My pack isn't for ladies like you, so time's gone by for that. Bargains picked up dirt cheap, a bit of damage here and there, as can be cut out or else never seen as wearing, but not fit to offer to rich folks as can pay for the looks of things as nobody sees. I'm not the man as it offer to open my pack to you, Mum. No, no. I'm a parent chap, as you say. These times makes folks imparent, but I'm not up to the mark of that. Why, what goods do you carry in your pack? said Mrs. Glegg. Fine-colored things, I suppose. Shawls and that? All sorts, Mum, all sorts, said Bob, thumping his bundle. But let us say no more about that, if you please. I'm here upon Mr. Tom's business, and I'm not the man to take up the time of my own. And pray, what is this business as to be kept from me? said Mrs. Glegg, who, solicited by a double curiosity, was obliged to let the one half wait. A little plan of nephew Tom's here, said good-natured Mr. Glegg, and not altogether a bad one, I think. A little plan for making money, that's the right sort of plan for young folks as have got their fortune to make, eh, Jane? But I hope it isn't a plan where he expects everything to be done for him by his friends. That's what the young folks think of mostly nowadays. And pray, what has this packman got to do with what goes on in our family? Can't you speak for yourself, Tom, and let your aunt know things as a nephew should? This is Bob Jake and aunt, said Tom, bridling the irritation that Aunt Glegg's voice always produced. I've known him ever since we were little boys. He's a very good fellow and always ready to do me a kindness. And he has had some experience in sending goods out. A small part of a cargo is a private speculation. And he thinks if I could begin to do a little in the same way, I might make some money. A large interest is got in that way. Large interest, said Aunt Glegg with eagerness. And what do you call large interest? Ten or twelve percent, Bob says, after expenses are paid. Then why wasn't I let you know such things before, Mr. Glegg? said Mrs. Glegg, turning to her husband with a deep, grating tone of reproach. Have you always told me as there was no getting more nor five percent? Pooh, pooh, nonsense, my good woman, said Mr. Glegg. You couldn't go into trade, could you? You can't get more than five percent with security. But I can turn a bit of money for you and welcome, Mum, said Bob, if you'd like to risk it. Not as there's any risk to speak on, but if you'd mind to lend a bit of money to Mr. Tom, he'd pay you six or seven percent and get a trifle for himself as well. And a good-natured lady like you'd like the feel of the money better if your nephew took part on it. What do you say, Mrs. G? said Mr. Glegg. I've got a notion, when I've made a bit more inquiry, as I shall perhaps start Tom here with a bit of a nest egg. You'll pay me interest, you know. And if you've got some little sums lying out, I'll twist up in a stocking toe or that. Mr. Glegg, it's beyond everything. You'll go and give information to the tramps next, as they may come and rob me. Well, well, as I was saying, if you like to join me with twenty pounds, you can. I'll make it fifty. That'll be a pretty good nest egg, eh, Tom? You're not counting on me, Mr. Glegg, I hope, said his wife. You could do fine things with my money, I don't doubt. Very well, said Mr. Glegg, rather snappishly. Then we'll do without you. I shall go with you to see this salt, he added, turning to Bob. And now I suppose you'll go all the other way, Mr. Glegg, said Mrs. G. I'm going to shut me out of my own nephew's business. I never said I wouldn't put money into it. I don't say as it should be twenty pounds, though you're so ready to say it for me. But he'll see some day as his aunt's in the right not to risk the money she saved for him till it's proved as it won't be lost. Ah, that's a pleasant sort of risk, that is, said Mr. Glegg, indiscreetly weakening at Tom, who couldn't avoid smiling, but Bob stemmed the injured lady's outburst. 
Aye, Mum, he said admiringly. You know what's what you do, and it's nothing but fair. You see how the first bit of a job answers, and then you'll come down handsome. Lors, it's a fine thing to have good kin. I got my bit of a nest egg, as the master calls it, all by my own sharpness. Ten sovereigns it was, with dousing the fire at Tory's mill, and it's growed and growed by a bit and a bit, till I ain't got a matter of thirty pounds to lay about, besides making my mother comfortable. I should get more, only I'm such a soft with the women. I can't help letting them have such good bargains. There's this bundle now, thumping it lustily. Any other chap would make a pretty penny out on it, but me, lords, I shall sell them for pretty near what I paid for them. Have you got a bit of good net now, said Mrs. Blagg in a patronizing tone, moving from the tea table and folding her napkin. And, Mum, not what you think it worth your while to look at. I'd scorn to show it to you. It'd be an insult to you. But let me see, said Mrs. Blagg, still patronizing. If they're damaged goods, they're like enough to be a bit the better quality. No, Mum, I know my place, said Bob, lifting up his pack and shouldering it. I'm not going to expose the loneliness of my trade to a lady like you. Packs has come down in the world. It'd cut you to the heart to see the difference. I'm at service, sir, when you've a mind to go and see salt. All in good time, said Mr. Blagg, really unwilling to cut short the dialogue. Are you wanted at the wharf, Tom? No, sir, I left Stowe in my place. Come, put down your pack and let me see, said Mrs. Blagg, drawing a chair to the window and seating herself with much dignity. Don't you ask it, Mum, said Bob entreatingly. Make no more words, said Mrs. Blagg severely, but do as I tell you. Eh, Mum, I'm lost that I am, said Bob, slowly depositing his pack on the stuff and beginning to untie it with unwilling fingers. But what you order shall be done, much fumbling and pauses between sentences. It's not as you'll buy a single thing on me. I'd be sorry for you to do it. But think of them poor women up in the villages there, as never stir a hundred yards from home. It'd be a pity for anybody to buy up their bargains. Lors, it's as good as junket and them when they see me with my pack, and I shall never pick up such bargains for them again. Leastways, I've no time now, for I'm off to lace them. See here now? Bob went on, becoming rapid again, and holding up a scarlet woolen kerchief with an embroidered wreath in the corner. Here's a thing to make a lass's mouth water, and only two shillings an end. And why? Why? Because there's a bit of moth hole in this plain end. Lors, I think the moths in the mildew was set by Providence a purpose to cheapen the goods a bit for the good-looking women as hain't got much money. If it hadn't been for the moths now, every handkerchief on them would have gone to the rich handsome ladies like you, Mum, at five shillings apiece, not a farthing less. And what does the moth do? Why, it nibbles off three shillings of the price in no time, and then a packman like me can carry it to the poor lasses as live under the dark back, make a bit of blaze for them. Lors, it's as good as a fire to look at that handkerchief. Bob held it at a distance for admiration, but Mrs. Blake said sharply, Yes, but nobody wants a fire this time of year. Put these colored things by. Let me look at your net, if you've got them. Eh, Mum, I told you how it'd be, said Bob, flinging aside the colored things with an air of desperation. I know to turn again you to look at such pouched articles as I carry. Here's a piece of figured muslin now. What's the use of you looking at it? You might as well look at poor folks' victual, Mum. It'd only take away your appetite. There's a yard in the middle, and on it is a pattern's all missed. Lors, why it's a muslin as a princess Victoria, fine and worn, but, added Bob, flinging it behind him on the turf, as if to save Mrs. Blake's eyes. It'll be bought up by the Hulkster's wife at Fibb's end. That's where it'll go. Ten shillings for the whole lot. Ten yards, counting the damage done. Five and twenty shillings that have been priced, not a penny less. But I'll say no more, Mum. It's nothing to you. A piece of muslin like that. You can afford to pay three times the money for a thing as isn't half so good. It's nets you talked on. Well, I've got a piece that'll serve you to make fun on. Bring me that muslin, said Mrs. Glegg. It's a buff. I'm partial to buff. Eh, but a damaged thing, said Bob, in a tone of deprecating disgust. You'd do nothing with it, Mum. You'd give it to the cook, I know you would, and it'd be a pity. She'd look too much like a lady in it. It's unbecoming for servants. Fetch it, and let me see you measure it, said Mrs. Glegg, authoritatively. Bob obeyed with ostentatious reluctance. 
See what there is over measure, he said, holding forth the extra hot yard while Mrs. Thug was busy examining the damaged yard and throwing her head back to see how far the fault would be lost on a distant view. I'll give you six shilling for it, she said, throwing it down with the air of a person who mentions an ultimatum. Didn't I tell you now, Mom, that it hurt your feelings to look at my peck? That damaged bit's turned your stomach now, I see it has, said Bob, wrapping the muslin up with the utmost quickness and apparently about to fasten his pack. You're used to seeing a different sort of article carried by packmen when you lived at the Stone House. Packs has come down in the world, I told you that. My goods are for common folks. Mrs. Pepper will give me ten shillings for that muslin and be sorry as I didn't ask for more. Such articles answer in the wearing. They keep their color till the threads melt away in the wash tub. And that won't be while I'm a youngin'. Well, seven shillings, said Mrs. Glegg. Put it out of your mind, and I'll now do, said Bob. Here's a bit of net, then, for you to look at before I tie up my pack, just for you to see what my trades come to. Spotted and sprayed, you see. Beautiful, but yellow. It's been lying by and got the wrong color. I could never have bought such a net if it hadn't been yellow. Lors, it took me a deal of study to know the value of such articles. When I began to carry my pack, I was ignorant as a pig. Net of calico was all the same to me. I thought them things the most valuable was the thickest. I was took in dreadful, for I'm a straightforward chap. Up to no tricks, mum. I can only say my nose is my own, for if I went beyond, I should lose myself pretty quick. And I give five and eight pence for that piece of net. If I was to tell you anything else, I should be telling you fibs. And five and eight pence I shall ask for, not a penny more, for it's a woman's art, and I like to accommodate the women. Five and eight pence for six yards, as cheap as if it was only the dirt on it was paid for. I don't mind having three yards of it, said Mrs. Glegg. Why, but there's six altogether, said Bob. No, Mum, it isn't worth your while. You can go to the shop tomorrow and get the same pattern ready whitened. It's only three times the money. What's that to a lady like you? He gave an emphatic tie to his bundle. Come, lay me out that muslin, said Mrs. Glegg. Here's eight shilling for it. You will be joking, Mum, said Bob, looking up with a laughing face. I seed you was a pleasant lady when I fust come to the winter. Well, put it me out, said Mrs. Glegg, peremptorily. But if I let you have it for ten shilling, Mum, you'll be so good as not to tell nobody. I should be a laughingstock. The trade would hoot me if they knowed it. I'm obliged to make believe as I ask more than I do for my goods, else they find out I was a flat. I'm glad you don't insist upon buying the net, for then I should have lost my two best bargains for Mrs. Pepper of Fibs Inn, and she's a rare customer. Let me look at the net again, said Mrs. Glegg, yearning after the cheap spots and sprays now they were vanishing. Well, I can't deny you, Mum, said Bob, handing it out. And see what a pattern now? Real lace ham goods. Now this is the sort of article I'm recommending Mr. Thomason now. Lors, it's a fine thing for anybody that's got a bit of money. These lace ham goods would make it breathe like maggots. If I was a lady with a bit of money, why, I know one has put 30 pounds into them goods. A lady with a cork leg, but a sharp, you wouldn't catch her running her head into a sack. She'd see her way clear out anything afore she'd be in a hurry to start. Well, she let out 30 pounds to a young man in the drapery line, and he laid it out in lace and goods. And a, and a supercargo of my acquaintance, not salt, took him out and got her 8%. First go off. And now you can't hold her, but she must be sending out cargies with every ship till she's getting as rich as a Jew. What's her name is? She doesn't live in this town. Now then, Mum, if you please give me the net. Here's fifteen shillings then for the two, said Mrs. Glegg, but it's a shameful price. Nay, Mum, you'll never say that when you're up on your knees in church in five years' time. I'm making you a present of the articles I am indeed. That eight pence shaves off my profit as clean as a razor. Now then, sir, continued Bob, shouldering his pack, if you please, I'll be glad to go and see about making Mr. Tom's fortune. Eh, I wish I'd got another twenty pounds to lay out for my sin. I shouldn't stay to say my catechism before I knowed what to do with it. Stop a bit, Mr. Glegg, said the lady, as her husband took his hat. You never will give me the chance of speaking. You'll go away now and finish everything about this business, and come back and tell me it's too late for me to speak. As if I wasn't my nephew's own aunt, and the head of the family on his mother's side, and laid by gaze all full weight for him, as he'll know who to respect when I'm laid in my coffin. 
Well, Mrs. G, say what you mean, said Mr. G hastily. Well, then, I desire us enough to make it done without my knowing. I don't say as I shan't venture twenty pounds if you make out as everything's right and safe. And if I do, Tom, concluded Mrs. Glegg, turning impressively to her nephew, I hope you'll always bear it in mind and be grateful for such an all. I mean you to pay me interest, you know. I don't approve of giving. We never looked for that in my family. Thank you, Aunt, said Tom, rather proudly. I prefer having the money only lent to me. Very well, that's the dog and spirit, said Mrs. Glegg, rising to get her knitting with the sense that any further remarks after this would have been bathos. Salt, that eminently briny chap, having been discovered in a cloud of tobacco smoke at the Anchor Tavern, Mr. Glegg commenced inquiries, which turned out satisfactorily enough to warrant the advance of the nest egg, to which Aunt Glegg contributed twenty pounds, and in the modest beginning you see the ground of a fact which might otherwise surprise you, namely, Tom's accumulation of a fund, unknown to his father, the promised in no very long time to meet the more tardy process of saving, and quite cover the deficit. And once his attention had been turned to the source of gain, Tom determined to make the most of it, and lost no opportunity of obtaining information and extending his small enterprises. And not telling his father, he was influenced by that strange mixture of opposite feelings which often give equal truth to those who blame an action and those who admire it. Partly, it was that disinclination to confidence which is seen between near kindred, the family repulsion which spoils the most sacred relations of our lives. Partly, it was the desire to surprise his father with a great joy. He did not see that it would have been better to soothe the interval with a new hope, and prevent the delirium of a too sudden elation. At the time of Maggie's first meeting with Philip, Tom had already nearly 150 pounds of his own capital, and while they were walking by the evening light in the Red Deeps, he, by the same evening light, was riding the Delaysum, proud of being on his first journey on behalf of Guest and Co., and revolving in his mind all the chances that by the end of another year he should have doubled his gains, lifted off the obliquee of debt from his father's name, and perhaps, for he should be 21, have got a new start for himself on a higher platform of employment. Did he not deserve it? He was quite sure that he did. With the bright black coronet looked down like that of a divinity well pleased to be worshipped on the pale, huge, small-featured face that was turned up to him. 3. The Wavering Balance I said that Maggie went home that evening from the Red Deeps with a mental conflict already begun. You have seen clearly enough, in her interview with Philip, what that conflict was. Here suddenly was an opening in the rocky wall which shut in the narrow valley of humiliation, where all her prospect was the remote, unfathomed sky, and some of the memory-haunting earthly delights were no longer out of her reach. She might have books, converse, affection. She might hear tidings of the world from which her mind had not yet lost its sense of exile. And it would be a kindness to Philip, too, who was pitiable, clearly not happy, and perhaps here was an opportunity indicated for making her mind more worthy of its highest service. Perhaps the noblest, completest devoutness could hardly exist without some width of knowledge. Must she always live in this resigned imprisonment? It was so blameless, so good a thing, that there should be friendship between her and Philip. The motives that forbade it were so unreasonable, so unchristian. But the severe, monotonous warning came again and again, that she was losing the simplicity and clearness of her life by admitting a ground of concealment, and that, by forsaking the simple rule of renunciation, she was throwing herself under the seductive guidance of illimitable wants. She thought she had won strength to obey the warning before she allowed herself the next week to turn her steps in the evening to the Red Deeps. But while she was resolved to say an affectionate farewell to Philip, how she looked forward to that evening walk in the still, fleckered shade of the hollows, away from all that was harsh and unlovely, to the affectionate, admiring looks that would meet her, to the sense of comradeship that childish memories would give to wiser, older talk, to the certainty that Philip would care to hear everything she said, which no one else cared for. It was a half-hour that would be very hard to turn her back upon, with the sense that there would be no other like it. Yet she said what she meant to say. She looked firm as well as sad. "'Philip, I have made up my mind. It is right that we should give each other up, in everything but memory. I could not see you without concealment. Stay, I know what you are going to say. It is other people's wrong feelings that make concealment necessary.' but concealment is bad, however it may be caused. I feel that it would be bad for me, for us both. And then, if our secret were discovered, there would be nothing but misery, dreadful anger, and then we must part after all, and it would be harder when we were used to seeing each other. 
Philip's face had flushed, and there was a momentary eagerness of expression, as if he had been about to resist the decision with all his might. But he controlled himself, and said, with assumed calmness, "'Well, Maggie, if we must part, let us try and forget it for one half hour. Let us talk together a little while for the last time.' He took her hand, and Maggie felt no reason to withdraw it. His quietness made her all the more sure she had given him great pain, and she wanted to show him how unwillingly she had given it. They walked together, hand in hand, in silence. "'Let us sit down in the hollow,' said Philip, "'where we stood the last time. See how the dog roses have strewed the ground, and spread their opal petals over it.' They sat down at the roots of the slanting ash. "'I've begun my picture of you among the scotch firs, Maggie,' said Philip, "'so you must let me study your face a little while you stay, since I'm not to see you again. Please, turn your head this way.' This was said in an entreating voice, and it would have been very hard of Maggie to refuse. The full, lustrous face— "'I shall be sitting for my second portrait, then,' she said, smiling. "'Will it be larger than the other?' "'Oh, yes, much larger. It is an oil painting. "'You will look like a tall hamadryad, dark and strong and noble, "'just issued from one of the fir-trees, "'when the stems are casting their afternoon shadows on the grass. "'You seem to think more of painting than of anything now, Philip.' "'Perhaps I do,' said Philip, rather sadly. "'But I think of too many things, sow all sorts of seeds, "'and get no great harvest from any one of them. "'I'm cursed with susceptibility in every direction, "'an effective faculty in none. "'I care for painting and music. "'I care for classic literature and medieval literature and modern literature.' I flutter all ways, and fly in none. But surely that is a happiness to have so many tastes, to enjoy so many things, when they are within your reach, said Maggie musingly. It always seemed to me a sort of clever stupidity only to have one sort of talent, almost like a carrier pigeon. It might be a happiness to have many tastes if I were like other men, said Philip bitterly. I might get some power and distinction by mere mediocrity as they do. At least I should get those middling satisfactions which make men contented to do without great ones. I might think society at St. Ogg's agreeable then. But nothing could make life worth the purchase money of pain to me, but some faculty that would lift me above the dead level of provincial existence. Yes, there is one thing. A passion answers as well as a faculty. Maggie did not hear the last words. She was struggling against the consciousness that Philip's words had set her own discontent vibrating again as it used to do. I understand what you mean, she said, though I know so much less than you do. I used to think I could never bear life if it kept on being the same every day, and I must always be doing things of no consequence and never know anything greater. But, dear Philip, I think we are only like children, that someone who is wiser is taking care of us. Is it not right to resign ourselves entirely, whatever may be denied us? I have found great peace in that for the last two or three years, even joy in subduing my own will. Yes, Maggie, said Philip vehemently, and you are shutting yourself up in a narrow, self-delusive fanaticism, which is only a way of escaping pain by starving into dullness all the highest powers of your nature. Joy and peace are not resignation. Resignation is the willing endurance of a pain that is not allayed, that you don't expect to be allayed. Stupefaction is not resignation, and it's stupefaction to remain in ignorance, to shut up all the avenues by which the life of your fellow men might have become known to you. I am not resigned. I am sure that life is long enough to learn that lesson. You are not resigned. You are only trying to stupefy yourself. Maggie's lips trembled. She felt there was some truth in what Philip said, and yet there was a deeper consciousness that, for any immediate application it had to her conduct, it was no better than falsity. Her double impression corresponded to the double impulse of the speaker. Philip seriously believed what he said, but he said it with vehemence because it made an argument against the resolution that opposed his wishes. But Maggie's face, made more childlike by the gathering tears, touched him with a tenderer, less egoistic feeling. He took her hand and said gently, "'Don't let us think of such things in this short half-hour, Maggie. Let us only care about being together. We shall be friends in spite of separation. We shall always think of each other. I shall be glad to live as long as you are alive, because I shall think there may always come a time when I can, when you will let me help you in some way.' "'What a dear, good brother you have been, Philip,' said Maggie, smiling through the haze of tears. "'I think you would have made as much fuss about me, and been as pleased for me to love you, as would have satisfied even me. You would have loved me well enough to bear with me, and forgive me everything.' 
That was what I always longed that Tom should do. I was never satisfied with a little of anything. That is why it is better for me to do without earthly happiness altogether. I never felt that I had enough music. I wanted more instruments playing together. I wanted voices to be fuller and deeper. Do you ever sing now, Philip? She added abruptly, as if she had forgotten what went before. Yes, he said. Every day, almost. But my voice is only middling, like everything else in me. Oh, sing me something. Just one song. I may listen to that before I go. Something you used to sing at Lorton on a Saturday afternoon, when we had the drawing room all to ourselves, and I put my apron over my head to listen. I know, said Philip, and Maggie buried her face in her hands, while he sang sotto voce. Love in her eyes sits playing, and then said, Oh, no, I won't stay, said Maggie, starting up. It will only haunt me. Let us walk, Philip. I must go home. She moved away so that he was obliged to rise and follow her. Maggie, he said in a tone of remonstrance, don't persist in this willful senseless privation. It makes me wretched to see you benumbing and cramping your nature in this way. You were so full of life when you were a child. I thought you would be a brilliant woman, all wit and bright imagination, and it flashes out in your face still until you draw that veil of dull quiescence over it. Why do you speak so bitterly to me, Philip? said Maggie. "'because I foresee it will not end well. "'You can never carry on this self-torture.' "'I shall have strength given to me,' said Maggie, tremulously. "'No, you will not, Maggie. "'No one has strength given to do what is unnatural. "'It is mere cowardice to seek safety in negations. "'No character becomes strong in that way. "'You'll be thrown into the world some day, "'and then every rational satisfaction of your nature "'that you deny now will assault you like a savage appetite.' "'Maggie started and paused, "'looking at Philip with alarm in her face. "'Philip, how dare you shake me in this way? "'You are a tempter!' No, I am not, but love gives insight, Maggie, and insight often gives foreboding. Listen to me. Let me supply you with books. Do let me see you sometimes. Be your brother and teacher, as you said at Lorton. It is less wrong that you should see me than that you should be committing this long suicide. Maggie felt unable to speak. She shook her head and walked on in silence till they came to the end of the Scotch firs, and she put out her hand in sign of parting. Do you banish me from this place forever, then, Maggie? Surely I may come and walk in it sometimes. If I meet you by chance, there is no concealment in that. It is the moment when our resolution seems about to become irrevocable, when the fatal iron gates are about to close upon us that tests our strength. Then, after hours of clear reasoning and firm conviction, we snatch at any sophistry that will nullify our long struggles and bring us the defeat that we love better than victory. Maggie felt her heart leap at this subterfuge of Philip's, and there passed over her face that almost imperceptible shock which accompanies any relief. He saw it, and they parted in silence. Philip's sense of the situation was too complete for him not to be visited with glancing fears, lest he had been intervening too presumptuously in the action of Maggie's conscience perhaps for a selfish end. But no, he persuaded himself his end was not selfish. He had little hope that Maggie would ever return the strong feeling he had for her, and it must be better for Maggie's future life, when these petty family obstacles to her freedom had disappeared, that the present should not be entirely sacrificed, and that she should have some opportunity of culture, some interchange of the mind above the vulgar level of those she was now condemned to live with. If we only look far enough off for the consequence of our actions, we can always find some point in the combination of results by which those actions can be justified. By adopting the point of view of a providence who arranges results, or of a philosopher who traces them, we shall find it possible to obtain perfect complacency in choosing to do what is most agreeable to us in the present moment. And it was in this way that Philip justified his subtle efforts to overcome Maggie's true prompting against a concealment that would introduce doubleness into her own mind, and might cause new misery to those who had the primary natural claim on her. But there was a surplus of passion in him that made him half independent of justifying motives. His longing to see Maggie, and make an element in her life, had in it some of that savage impulse to snatch an offered joy, which springs from a life in which the mental and bodily constitution have made pain predominant. He had not his full share in the common good of men, he could not even pass muster with the insignificant, but must be singled out for pity, and accepted from what was a matter of course with others. Even to Maggie he was an exception. It was clear that the thought of his being her lover had never entered her mind. Do not think too hardly of Philip. Ugly and deformed people have great need of unusual virtues, because they are likely to be extremely uncomfortable without them. 
with the theory that unusual virtues spring by a direct consequence out of personal disadvantages, as animals get thicker wool in severe climates, is perhaps a little overstrained. The temptations of beauty are much dwelt upon, but I fancy they only bear the same relation to those of ugliness, as the temptation to excess at a feast, where the delights are varied for eye and ear as well as palate, bears to the temptations that assail the desperation of hunger. Does not the hunger tower stand as the type of the utmost trial to what is human in us? Philip had never been soothed by that mother's love which flows out to us in the greater abundance because our need is greater, which clings to us the more tenderly because we are the less likely to be winners in the game of life, and the sense of his father's affection and indulgence towards him was marred by the keener perception of his father's faults. Kept aloof from all practical life as Philip had been, and by nature half feminine in sensitiveness, he had some of the woman's intolerant repulsion towards worldliness and the deliberate pursuit of sensual enjoyment. And this one strong natural tie in his life, his relation as a son, was like an aching limb to him. Perhaps there is inevitably something morbid in a human being who is in any way unfavorably accepted from ordinary conditions until the good force has had time to triumph, and it has rarely had time for that at two and twenty. That force is present in Philip in much strength, but the son himself looks feeble through the morning mists. Okay, before we get started on discussion of these chapters, I just wanted to remind you how I'm able to make this podcast a reality. Okay, these chapters are, like, getting really good. Um, I'm very, like, pleasantly surprised or, I guess, like, happy with how things are turning out. I think we are getting to see a lot of really good development in the characters. Um, we see Maggie kind of going through this trial where she is so unhappy with her life that she is desperate for any kind of release and she finds that in being very removed from society, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Um, she is kind of taking herself out of this, like, human form, her, like, human living, and is just kind of letting herself um, up to whatever happens to her. And I, I don't think that's going to have the outcome that she hopes it will. I think that Philip's probably right in that um, she is doing this because she's desperate not necessarily because she thinks it's actually going to do any good, and I think we will see that in the coming chapters, that by entertaining this idea with Philip, she's going to be better off, she's going to be happier, but I definitely see some merit in this idea that if they got caught, it would definitely be pretty, like, disastrous for them. I think they would be pretty upset, pretty miserable. Um, I don't think they would have a good party in their family does not get along, um, they're not going to be able to keep up this, um, this connection once, uh, it's found out, and inevitably it will be found out. There's no real way around that, uh, so it's just a matter of time, and I'm, I'm a little bit scared for her because I think she is going to kind of let herself enjoy spending time with Philip and having somebody that's interested in her, um, I, I think she probably somewhere in her subconscious knows that he likes her more than just, like, a friend, but I don't think she's entertaining that idea right now. I think eventually she will, um, whether she entertains it in a positive or negative way, but the fact that Philip is willing to just, like, accept that that may never come to fruition is a little bit of a pacifier for me. It makes me feel a little bit less awful about the situation, um, just because I have faith that he won't kind of try to manipulate the situation or take advantage of her. Um, he's already kind of done that in that he has openly, like, gone against her wishes and is pushing, like, his own agenda, basically. Um, but in his defense, it is also kind of for her as well. Like, she's, she's also going to benefit from this. It's not just him selfishly being, like, you need to spend time with me because I'm lonely and sad and woe is me and I'm deformed. Nobody's ever going to love me and nobody cares about me. It's more like 
I'm lonely and sad and deformed and you're being, like, stupid. And I'm here to help you not be so stupid. Um, so I think that that's kind of an interesting dynamic to watch play out. And I'm curious to see if that develops at all. Um, to see kind of where that takes us in the story. Uh, we see Tom making some pretty, like, big moves. Um, Bob brings, uh, Maggie some books, which is kind of what starts her, her journey into, like, becoming a nun, basically. But we also see him introducing Tom to this, like, new way to make money. And I think that that's really nice. I'm... I'm, I'm worried, <laughs> I don't want to be cynical, but I'm, I'm worried that somehow this is going to go awry. And I, I don't want to doubt Bob's character. I really, really, really want him to be a very genuine, true source of good for this family. Um, but I just can't help wondering if there may be something else going on here. And maybe he does have some kind of like selfishness in mind. I just really don't want to get too positive about the situation when we are still so deep in like, I think the, the book was called, um, like, The Valley of Despair or something. I don't want to get too hopeful while we aren't really on the up yet. Um, Tom has made good money so far, which is good to see. It makes me feel a little bit better about the situation. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that things will start to turn up from here for the family. Um, if nothing else, because Tom may be able to pay back their debts way sooner than they expected. Um, my only concern is that things will not be well once that kind of pressure is alleviated from the family. I'm a little bit concerned, um, that we will end up having a situation where now that they are no longer concerned or stressed or however you want to see it about the finances, um, that Mr. Tulliver and Tom may focus a little bit too much on the revenge portion. Um, just because they pay off their debts doesn't mean that they now own the mill and everything back. Wakeham is still their master in essence, and also getting his aunt and uncle involved by kind of taking this, this like financial, uh, boost, if you will, from them. I'm a little bit nervous for how this is going to pan out. I'm a, I'm a little bit worried that it's going to be really good at the beginning and then kind of fizzle out or get really bad really quickly. Um, and like I said, I don't want to be cynical. I don't want to kind of set us up for failure or not see the positive in things. I'm just aware that this, uh, there's still a good amount of the book left. <laughs> there, there's still like a third of the book left. And um, if everything was to go perfectly and amazingly, I don't think we would need that much, that much more writing. So I'm trying to stay hopeful but realistic. So we shall see how things go from here, where we end up, how we see things evolve between Maggie and Philip and in Tom's adventures, and if we see Bob's character evolve anymore. Um, I'm curious to see where all of these new developments will take us. Thanks for listening. This has been Book 3rd, Chapter 9, through Book 5th, Chapter 3 of The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Stay tuned for Monday's episode, covering Book 5th, Chapter 4, through Book 6th, Chapter 4. 